Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. I'm watching a little bit of the basketball, but mostly I'm following these impeachment hearings. Thus far, they've been pretty entertaining. Uh, One thing I was surprised about is to hear that uh, the women that were the most uh, uh, saying the most egregious things, like shoot Pelosi in the head, were women. You know, it seems surprising to me that it would be women saying that about a female politician. Now to new developments in the Capitol chaos. Right now, the St. Louis area woman seen holding the House Speaker's sign is back out on the streets tonight. Emily Hernandez from Sullivan faces five federal charges for her part in the Capitol Hill riots two weeks ago. In court documents, prosecutors showed photos and screenshots of video taken of Hernandez inside the Capitol and outside on the steps. In the photos, she's holding a sign that has Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi's name on it. Her attorney told me that she understands there are consequences for her actions and wants to put this behind her as soon as she can. She's a the girl next door. All new this midday, a Gloucester woman is facing several charges after prosecutors say she illegally entered the U.S. Capitol during the January 6th insurrection. FBI agents arrested Melody Steele Smith on January 20th. Agents charged her with knowingly entering or remaining in any restricted building on grounds with lawful authority, violent entry, and disorderly conduct on Capitol grounds. The FBI says law enforcement received an online tip from a relative about Steele Smith on January 8th. Officials say she shared photos from inside House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's office on her Facebook page. Other photos showed rioters inside the Capitol with the caption, We stormed the castle. Federal prosecutors have charged two women from Bucks County in connection with the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol. Don Bancroft, pictured right there, has been charged along with Diane Santos-Smith for violent entry on Capitol grounds and also disorderly conduct in a restricted building. Federal investigators say that you can also hear the women on a video discussing their desire for violence against House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Connie Roman noticed her neighbor Valerie Elaine Erke posting videos from the U.S. Capitol on January 6th to social media. I saw some videos. I know she's a Trump supporter. I thought it was just a trip. Turned out to be so much more. According to an affidavit released by the FBI, the agency arrested Erke after they were tipped off to videos on her Facebook, one of them showing a mob of people inside the U.S. Capitol with the caption, we made it inside right before they shoved us all out. I took off when I felt pepper spray in my throat. The affidavit says Erke wanted to be a part of the crowd. Can you tell us why you went down to D.C.? From the nation's capital to federal court in Boston, Suzanne Ayani not talking about her January 6th trip to Washington, D.C., even though she posted plenty of pictures about it on social media. There's a lot to say on social media. Why are you not talking now? Ayani arrested Tuesday morning in Natick, the town meeting member charged with entering the Capitol during the attack. Federal prosecutors pointing to this picture that appears to show her inside. Investigators say a 23-year-old West Virginia woman bragged about being a part of the group storming the United States Capitol to someone she knows, and that person then showed the messages to the FBI. Grayson Don Courtright is accused of taking a members-only sign near the Senate chambers 
Her charges include theft of government property, violent entry, and disorderly conduct. Someone who knows Courtright thought she saw her in a video of the U.S. Capitol riots. She messaged her on Instagram. Courtright then admitted she went in and the person said they were embarrassed, at which point the FBI says Courtright said, quote, I'm not embarrassed, so you shouldn't be, bragging the event was making history and she thought it was cool. The report provides evidence that shows both Felicia and Corey Connell participated in helping crowds pass police barriers and obstruct law enforcement from securing the Capitol from the protesters. A witness provided information for Felicia Connell's Snapchat account, where the report says she talks about being recruited into a Kansas City chapter of the Proud Boys despite being from Tucson. The report also says Connell posted a video saying, I never could have imagined having that much of an influence on the events that unfolded today. And we did it. A Burlington County woman appeared in court by Zoom today to face charges in the Capitol riot. Stephanie Hazelton of Medford was arrested this morning. Authorities say she was caught on video encouraging rioters to storm the Capitol. She is expected to be released on bail soon. Well, these three Beverly Hills residents will be in a federal court this afternoon. We don't know the exact charges they are facing, but we are told they were filed in Washington, D.C. Now take a look at this video from earlier this morning. You can see the number of FBI agents who, along with Beverly Hills Police, came to this apartment building on Palm Drive and arrested 52-year-old Gina Bisignano. She is a salon owner who admitted to the local newspaper here that she was at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. And there are videos posted on social media that show her in one of the windows of the building and then talking about getting sprayed in the face. A local woman charged in connection with the Capitol riot will be allowed to go home while awaiting trial. A federal judge rejected prosecutors' attempt to keep Rachel Powell locked up. Jessica Gway is live at the Butler County Jail with more. Jessica. Yes, Ken, uh, capital assault suspect Rachel Powell will no longer be here at the Butler County Prison. A second federal judge ruled that the mother of eight from Mercer County may be released and await trial at home, but with restrictions. We've been here for several hours and have not seen her leave yet. And the other room on the other side of this door. She's been called the bullhorn lady and the pink hat lady for her alleged actions during the U.S. Capitol attack on January 6th. Rachel Powell of Mercer County has been in government custody since last week, facing several charges. And now a second federal judge in Washington, D.C. ordered she can await trial at home. The mother of eight allegedly used a bullhorn to give details about the Capitol layout and used a large pipe to break into the Capitol. Judge Beryl Powell appeared torn and said the evidence against Powell weighed heavily in favor for pretrial detention. Federal prosecutors said Powell should remain behind bars before trial, writing Wednesday and appealing her release that Powell is a leading participant. They also introduced a picture of ammo for her registered Glock and AK-47. Powell's defense attorney said she was not armed and did not physically harm anyone on January 6th and had no advanced knowledge of the Capitol. There may be some additional steps that need to be taken since Powell will be on home detention and electronic electronic monitoring. So it is unclear right now if that process has been completed. Once again, we've been here since that, this afternoon and have not seen her leave the building. We did reach out to her attorney to find out more information, but have not heard back. Live in Butler, Jessica Gway, KDK News. She's uh, the girl next door. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast.
Uh, I think I'm having some computer difficulties, so I'm going to disconnect and just dial back in because I suspect it's going to impact the quality. Uh, I couldn't even focus in on our audio segments. I'm going to redial our guest, dial myself back in, and see if that puts an end to our, our computer issues for the moment. Let's see. Okay. Was able to get back in. That was, wow, lots of difficulty and, and strife uh, for craziness. Just everything froze, and I could not could not do anything. So we'll see if we can redial and try it again. Such a shame. I was all excited for our introduction, and then I really couldn't focus on it because we were having all the crazy audio difficulties, and it was even difficult for me to dial back in. But we're here now. Let's see if we can proceed. Uh, Hello? Greetings, Miss Baker. Got you back. Great. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Thank you so much for being patient. Wouldn't be a program if we didn't have some sort of snafu or a technical uh, difficulty of some sort. Folks should be able to hear us either live or via the regular stream, whichever way that you uh, are listening to the broadcast. We should be up and rolling. I'm going to make sure folks can hear us online and then we'll do the uh, proper introduction. Let's see. All right. It should be back online as well. And or we'll give it one second and then should be back on <laughs> online. Okay. Wow. Everything is, is challenged, challenge all the way. Is it? Uh, yes. All right. Back online. And the folks who are listening via the phone line should be able to hear grant uh, for the folks who are listening to the archives. Uh, it'll be pristine for the most part. Anywho, before all of our tech issues, uh, the introduction that we heard at the beginning, uh, the first voice, uh, Orenthal James was able to express some of his surprise, uh, that the folks who are accused of spraying some of the most violent and hateful, hateful vitriol, uh, were females, white women specifically, uh, directed at Nancy Pelosi. Uh, and he said, I was, you know, surprised to see that. Uh, folks who have been listening to the cows 12 years or maybe not quite that long if you've been listening any time at all know that we have generally focused on uh, the role of white women uh, I've concluded you cannot have a system of racism white supremacy without white women and contrary to almost all of the reports that have really emphasized oh my goodness these males sometimes they'll say white male sometimes they don't even say white male they'll just say these males that were out in dc and storming the capitol and this is a disgrace and yada 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 uh you heard at the beginning it was a lot a lot of white women i could have stopped after i found one or two or three but i mean no it was a lot of white women who were out in the ruckus breaking windows threatening stealing i mean all of the treasonous carnage that you saw on January 6th, it was not just white men. And even that last segment, Rachel Powell, she is not in custody. A white woman and mother, she dumped the children on her estranged husband to go and terrorize in Washington, D.C. She had smashed cell phones to go bags packed knives, ammunition for an AK-47, and she's chilling at home. Khalif Browder, remember him? Folks forget. Remember him? Backpack. And he was in greater confinement for years for a backpack. 
Rachel Powell is chilling at home. White women do it better. Our guest for today's broadcast, in addition to being patient through our tech difficulties, she had a report uh, at the New York Times, and it was titled A Century Ago, White Protestant Extremism Marched on Washington, D.C. Interview, really. And she talked about her research uh, into Klan terrorism in the U.S. and many of the parallels between what happened uh, on January 6th of this year. Uh, and they talked about her book, The Gospel According to the Klan, the KKK's Appeal to Protestant America, 1915 to 1930. Uh, and then I checked out she has quite a bit of research uh, talking about white supremacy, racism, and even the role of white women. Her report, Mother Knows Best, the politics of white Christian motherhood uh, thought it would be grand to talk about this event uh, since it's still unfolding. We'll have to see if these folks will be prosecuted, if our former president will be uh, charged criminally in any of this, even though he's just been acquitted uh, by the Senate. I uh, thought it would be grand to discuss some of her work uh, and put what just happened into context. Uh, joining us live, our guest for the evening, Miss Kelly J. Baker. Uh, Miss Baker, are you with us, ma'am? I am. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. Thank you kindly for uh, chatting it up with us uh, this Tuesday evening, uh, February, Tuesday, February 16th, 2021. Uh, for our listeners, uh, this might be their first time uh, hearing about you and the work that you do. If you'd like to give kind of a, a brief intro about your research, uh, your writings, just to fo uh, help folks be a bit more informed. Sure. Um, my training is as a historian of white supremacy. Um, I'm a white lady doing this work, which I think is important to note. And um, I have done a lot of research into thinking through why white supremacist movements like the Klan or something like what would happen on January 6th uh, appeals to white people, men and women, and why they are motivated to do this. And um, to think through what that means about white supremacy today, right? What are the kind of lingering impacts of something like the Klan in the 1920s to um, the insurrection that happened on January 6th? Spectacular. Included in that, she says she is a white lady. Uh, for this broadcast, I use the term racism and the term white supremacy as synonyms uh, I use the same definition for both terms the definition I use is as follows a global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white uh, do you think such a system exists? Do you think that definition is accurate? I think that definition is pretty impressive. And what I like about it in particular is that you're talking about it as a system, not as individual people. Uh, I know there's a tendency, especially with news media, to talk about someone as racist, right, or someone as white supremacist, and to not look at those ways in which white people have built systems of power that impact um our legal system that impact um, who has opportunity 
that guarantees who continues to be oppressed. So um, I'm right there with you on this one. And I always appreciate it when we're able to see that this is not just an American phenomenon, that it's a global phenomenon. um, And it's the conditions that we all labor under, right? Like it's not avoidable in any way. Hmm. I just, the, the last portion of your response I thought was important. Um, the conditions we all labor under mm-hmm. uh, that I think is important just because uh, I'm a black male uh, and I think non-white people anywhere in the known universe, I think just being accurate, I don't think individuals classified as white labor under the system of racism, white supremacy. I think they practice, execute, refine, maintain the system of white supremacy. I think non-white people labor suffer under racism, white supremacy, just being accurate about words. Is, do you think is, yeah. that just, is that logical? No, no. I mean, that makes sense. And I mean, for me, when I'm saying that we all labor under, right, like this is a system that we all are in, right? Um, and that system definitely benefits white people. And I completely agree with you that white people are affirming this, they're supporting it, they're fostering it, they're bolstering it, right? They're guaranteeing that it continues. So yeah, so I think that was a lack of precision on my part, but just to talk about like that we're in it, but we definitely have different places in that system too, right? For sure, for sure. Uh, let's see one question I have enjoyed asking many of our white guests over the years. Uh, there's a non-white author. Uh, he wrote a report about racism in a pretty mainstream publication. And he has one sentence. He says, uh, or writes, white people are often sincerely and greatly pained by racism, but rarely are they pained enough. And I focus just on the first portion of his sentence. Uh, white people are often sincerely and greatly pained by racism. You as a a white lady, your experience research on white supremacy, white friends, white family members, and what have you, do you think that a substantial number of people classified as white are often sincerely and greatly pained by racism? It's an interesting quote. Right. Um, Because I think that white people are sincerely aggrieved and pained when someone suggests that they are racist or they participate in racism. Um, I think that there are consequences for um, white people in this racist system that they might not see or notice or care about because of the benefits that they get from it. Um, But, yeah, I don't. I don't know that I entirely agree with that. I mean, I think there are moments where the rubber hits the road, right? Um, But I think often of um, Iwo Jima Oluo's um, book um, about racism in which she talks about like the worst thing that happens to white people is that they get called racist, right? And all the feelings that come along with that. Um, And I think about that a lot, right? So it's not so much necessarily that white people um, are... I mean, they're trying to understand racism, but I don't think um, white folks appreciate realizing how much of a part of that system they are or being called out. Right. And so she talks a lot about the feelings that happen there. Right. That being called racist is somehow worse than racism. And um, and I think, unfortunately, that's very much where a lot of white people still live um, and 
we can see this in our political culture at how white politicians in particular bristle, right, in any association with white supremacy. They get real nervous um, and want to distance themselves in all kinds of sort of interestingly rhetorical ways. But make sure I'm understanding you correctly, Ms. Baker, uh, your response, you're saying that it seems to you that frequently many white people are more pained, more upset about being labeled racist or thought of as racist, as opposed to actually being upset about white supremacy being practiced. Is that my understanding you correctly? I do think that that's what I'm saying. And, and I do think we have more and more white people that are committed to anti-racist work and who are deeply pained by what's happening and want to work against these systems and do this sort of thing. Um, but I also kind of have concerns about that too, right? There were all these bestsellers over the summer that were anti-racist books, right? After the murder of George Floyd. And like, there are all these lists that came out, right? About how to be an anti-racist and how to do these sorts of things. Um, and like, great. I'm, I'm glad that folks are reading these books. I'm glad that white people are actually reading these books. Um, there's a question of how all those books that became bestsellers then turn into action that actually makes a difference in our world. Um, or if it's just something that white people kind of play along with intellectually, right? Like I can read about this, but maybe they're not bringing some practice into their life about thinking through like, wow, this is an oppressive system. How do we make it less oppressive? Um, and I'm not sure that that connect always happens. Hmm. The goal here, uh, the context of white supremacy, we have failed, but the goal is to replace white supremacy with justice, not to mm -hmm. make it less oppressive. Uh, but that was interesting about those lists because they've mm -hmm. had those lists come out for a long time. I remember they had the Ferguson syllabus that was mm -hmm. seven years ago. My goodness. And lots of these lists that you can, we can read about racism. Ostensibly white people can lead, read about racism to stop practicing white supremacy mm -hmm. racism. Uh, I think Isabel Wilkerson's case was one of the popular books on that list uh, from this past summer to read about. Did you hear about that one case? I did. I did. I haven't read it yet. So, um, I am behind on my reading list. You can leave it there. What's the young lady that you uh, mentioned in giving your response? Oh, um, I, it's Iwo Jima, I-J-E-O-M-A, Oluo, O-L-U-O. Um, she has a new book out actually called Mediocre about white men, and I'm dying to read it, and I haven't been able to read it yet. Um, but she has a book called, um, I'm going to get the title wrong off the top of my head, but I think it's called, um, so you want to talk about race and, um, I think it's a fantastic book and it's one that I recommend, um, that fellow white people read, um, because she's a woman of color talking about what this looks like in lived experience for her, um, to live in a white supremacist culture, um, and the way in which white people, can think they're being allies, but aren't, right? And how, if you really want to make some growth, right, in anti-racist practice and get to a point where we have equality and justice, like that that's painful work and it's not easy. And, um, you know, that one of the lingering questions for me about her book that I really like is, you know, do you want to do better or do you want to look better? 
And um, that's become kind of foundational to the way that I do this work is it's like, am I doing this to look better towards people or am I doing this because I want things to be better? And um, it's kind of become a grounding question. And I think it's so useful for folks, especially white folks who are trying to get into anti-racist work to really consider like what their motivations are and what their goals are. And because um, if they're just in it to look better, like it's not helpful. Right. Um, just another form of practicing racism, white supremacy. If you're just in this to look better, would that be accurate? Right. Yeah. No, I think it is. Right. I mean, cause you're just looking better. You're not doing anything. And, um, and that's not the goal, right? The goal is that we want things to be better. You don't want somebody to like tap you on the shoulder and say, good job. Right. Like that's not what you should be doing this for. That shouldn't be the larger goal. Um, but I think people still want to look better, right? There are white people that want to look better and want to be able to claim that they're anti-racist um, without necessarily doing the work that they need to do um, for themselves to really interrogate their place um, and what white supremacy does for them and the consequences it has for non-white peoples, but also to think very carefully about, like, are they just performing this in some way, right? Um you know, are you just trying to show up and show people that, you know, you're a good white person? And um, and I think, unfortunately, a lot of that stuff still happens. Right. Um, it's easy to share a meme <laughs> that show like an anti-racist meme that it is to right, really like r- grapple with that at home about like, what am I doing? Right. What are my advantages? You know, what would it mean if I step back and give space for other people, right? Would it, would it mean if I'm joining in a work for justice, right, um, and doing this kind of thing? So it's always kind of a interesting question that um, I like to push on other people to be like, are you trying to look better or are you trying to do better? Hmm. <laughs> Which one is happening here? Hmm. Well, well, let's we'll keep that in mind as we speak this evening. Um, you, I have a quote from your book. The question I'm going to ask, this will give you a little extra time to think. My question is going to be, since you grew up in Florida, man, oh man, as a white woman, (laughs) you should be able to share at least one racist joke that you remember rubber meeting the road. The quote that inspired this, you write, and this is about so-called nice benign white people Mm -hmm. you're right but more than that i wondered if these ethnographers had ever encountered nice racism of the rural Mm -hmm. south where i was raised in in my north florida hometown white people no matter their class orientation perfected nice racism now there were some white folks who were belligerent and unapologetic racists but most white folks hid their racism behind civility until provoked for a white woman in that environment of Florida. I would think you've heard at least I'll say a dozen racist jokes. Do you think you could remember one to share with us? You know, I don't know if I could remember (laughs) to share with you, but I mean, yeah, you know, like rural North Florida, um, we're basically lower Alabama, you know, um, deep South. Um, and I, I think what I remember more, um, are the kind of white folks who were very, very polite, right. To someone's face, 
you know, and, and could play a good game of being friendly, um, uh, particularly um, to black people, right? Pretend to be friendly. And then as soon as that person walks away, then says something nasty, right? Or um, does that kind of thing. So you, so I grew up seeing those kinds of interactions, which was really strange and um, kind of hard for me to grapple with. I mean, it was just so kind of common, you know, um, I'm still in a place where um, people are flying their Confederate flags and their Trump flags, <laughs> simultaneously, you know? Um, and so it very much is the case that you see this kind of thing. Um, though I will say that, um, since Trump has been president, I think there are a lot of white folks, um, where I'm at who are a little bit more likely to be provoked by smaller things than they might've been previously and feel like they kind of get a pass for, um, pretty nasty behavior. Um, Nasty behavior, they had, like what? Give us, give us an like, example. Like, you know, like to call people names or to say something about someone because they were black or something like this, right? Um, or, you know, and even, too, because it's the South, right? Like, so a lot of this would be, like, people that don't know their place, right? Which is usually code for either women, you know, not knowing their place in the patriarchy, right? Um, or, you know, in the system of white supremacy, it's people that aren't deferring to white people and that that becomes a problem. Hmm. Fascinating. Okay. Just to make sure with my question, as a white woman who grew up in Florida, you have heard. A racist oh no. Yeah, no, no. Okay. I mean, this, this is a, yeah. Okay. No. <laughs> I'm just pointing this out for our uh, yeah, listeners because that's right. a huge pattern uh, with our white guests. We've had, we've been on for 12 years. So we've had lots and lots yeah. and lots of white guests and we've had folks who've uh, grown up all over the place, North, South, outside the U S uh, we've had white people on who've literally grew up in Georgia and the like who said, Oh yeah, I grew up. I heard thousands of them, not dozens, thousands right. of racist jokes. And Oh man, tell us. And the reason I ask is because frequently White people admit to having a problem being honest, discussing white supremacy, racism. One mm -hmm. of the few times I've found white people are relentlessly truthful in sharing their thoughts about black people, racist jokes, just unpack what they say. They share so many. There's so many of them. It's such a important uh, bit of transmitting the culture of white supremacy. That's all I can include because there are thousands uh, uh, and we've had so many guests on the program who said, yes, I've heard them, but they can't recall one racist joke to share with us. Just yeah, I don't know matters. if it's so much. I mean, so it's one of those things where I don't know that I remember jokes as much as I remember these like weird encounters, right. Um, in this. And I do think that people have heard so many of them. And I think also that I can feel my own hesitance about like, do I want to remember those jokes? Right. Like, is that something to share? Is that like helpful? <laughs> you know, like what would that, um, mean in some sort of way? So I can understand that like discomfort about this. Um, and, like, so I get it. And at the same time that I think it's just so much of this is still, um, so unfortunately common and, um, and you know, people don't necessarily want to be pressed about that, you know? Um, but I can remember all the Confederate flags, you know, 
the houses that you would go into, the, the Confederate flag is like pinned on the wall, <laughs> you know, or, or in the yard or, um, you know, the, uh, I don't know. You might know these, you might not know these, the Dixie Outfitter t-shirts. Are you familiar with this? I believe so. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that have like the Confederate flags on them or some sort of saying or, you know, um, you know, that very much kind of fits in this kind of Southern vibe about, you know, what we're talking about is the Civil War. We're not talking about race when, of course, the shirts are about race and the Civil War, but mostly are about, you know, racial coding there and um, showing people that Southern identity so often is still completely wrapped up in um, ideas of whiteness rather than realizing that the South is really diverse, right? Um, That's one way of remembering it. Context of white supremacy with our guest, Kelly J. Baker. Uh, Get ready to discuss some of her work as it relates to the Capitol siege, although I guess we've done some of that already. Uh, The number is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. One thing I will uh, request, if you could make an effort to be direct with your responses we're going to try to cover as much as possible so if it give us the detail and the nuance but uh let's try and see if we can get because we want to get to some of our listeners too and i have quite a few questions so we will rock and roll i want to start off because you mentioned patriarchy and on this program in fact i'll say this frequently i found in conversations on white supremacy racism patriarchy sexism is used to conceal the role of white women in maintaining the system of white supremacy. I could point to the plantation, but I said the Capitol. Excellent. Cause that was the audio that we started with. I've heard so many reports that emphasize it was white men or again, mm-hmm. sometimes they don't even say the white, they'll just say it was men, men on the, on the Capitol, men on the Capitol. It was lots. That's why we had the audio we started with. It was lots of white women uh, who were right out there leading the siege, breaking into the building. Uh, Can you discuss the role and even some of the concealing of the role of white women in the system of white supremacy? So I think part of this is an assumption that white women are somehow not involved in violence, right? So that white men are involved in violence, but somehow white women are separate from this, right? Um, So that when the news gets a hold of this, they're always really shocked, right? That white ladies are involved in racist action. They can be involved in the insurrection um, because they kind of assume that that's not what white women do, (laughs) which I think... Again, is like, as you said, right, the patriarchy obscures this, white supremacy obscures this. Um, But, you know, women are on the ground creating and fostering white supremacy. Um, So they're there and they're doing it. I think there's just this weird, like, hesitance about it. Like, they can't possibly be involved because they're women. And it's like, well, no, of course they could because they benefit from white supremacy too. This is one thing I point out with many of our guests. This is one of those uh, things I also uh, submit is extremely important. Uh, White people frequently focus on the benefits that individuals classified as white derive from the system of white supremacy, terrorizing non-white people, as opposed to the practice. These are things, behaviors 
that white people engage in to practice racism, white supremacy. And I think that's so important because the capital siege and, and acts of violence, that is not benefiting. That is practicing engaged in the business operations of white supremacy, racism um, with white women specifically that I think that's important. What you just said in terms of not whether I guess there's a hesitancy about thinking of white women being involved in violence and even historically, right? There's a lot of this, even not including white women like uh, Carolyn Bryant Dunham being involved in the lynching of Emmett Till. Why do you think that hesitancy is there to include that white women? Yes. Are a part of the violence of white supremacy. Well, I think part of it is this way in which white women are kind of viewed as perpetual victims, you know, that, if we're going to talk about you know, the lynching of Emmett Till, um, that there's this assumption that this woman who accused him is a victim, right? And that white ladies kind of lean into this victim role um, in some of these. So I think there's that is going on. Um, I think it's this weird way that women are still not seen as violent in the ways that men are, right? That, that this is somehow men are violent and women aren't, which is silly, but kind of a stereotype that still exists. Um, so I think it's a combination of those two, right? This assumption that white women are going to be victims of violence in some sort of way. And also that when we think violence, there's a way in which masculinity is tied to that, um, which obscures when women are committing acts of violence, right? Actively and are wanting to participate. And that kind of gets glossed over. Can you talk about, or I guess, yeah, can you talk about some of those patterns in your research in, in writing about the Klan, seeing those, that same yeah. type of, yeah, pattern with white women being absolved? Yeah, I mean, you know, there were women in the Klan, right? There was a whole separate order for women of the Klan. Um, they were deeply involved with this um, in, you know, a way in which they're marching. They're there when people are lighting crosses on fire, right? They're not separate from that kind of thing. Um, and so that they are participants in, you know, these acts that are terrifying, that are terror, um, and are walking there beside white men and doing this. And then the other thing that they're doing is that they're supporting white men on the ground, right? So that they're teaching their children, you know, what white supremacist norms are, right? They're gossiping about owners of different businesses who are non-white, right, um, to get these people to lose the business. So they're involved in violence, not only in this, like, physical manifestation, but also in these more subtle, ordinary ways um, that are equally damaging. Hmm. As a white lady, um, you, this is something I think you can speak to directly. Can you talk about some of the ways that you have been taught uh, and or recognize ways that you have acted out your role as a white woman in the system of white supremacy. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, I grew up in the South, right? I feel like people understood like the racial divides here, right? So that there were adults, right? Including my parents who taught us certain ways to inhabit the world, right? As white people. Um, and I think a lot about uh, the way that I just kind of bought into that until I knew better, right? Like that I might've worked against it some, but 
it took a while, um, probably until I was a teenager, right, to really like press against some of this stuff that um, you get really early on and start to really say like, I don't understand why we're doing this or this doesn't make sense or, you know, how are people enforcing these sorts of things, you know? Um, and this could be like my parents having clear opinions on who I should date, right, or who I shouldn't date. Um, you know, things like that, that come to bear on how we, um, how we interact with other people and, you know, uh, questions that people have about who your friends can be. Um, and so I think in a lot of ways, when you grow up in these, like very conservative, um, white places, when you're a white person that, you know, unless you are really pushing back, then you're a part of the problem. Um, and so I know that I very much was early on, like that, that's just kind of where it was and not to realize until much later that, oh no, like these are problems and, um, I should be not doing what I'm doing. But, um, I think it's kind of hard to do that sometimes when you're involved in these systems, not to make excuses for people. Right. But to say like some of the stuff is really embedded. Hmm. Centuries for centuries. Centuries, centuries. Um, that's important. I was reminded when you were sharing just about how you were taught and growing up again in the South and what have you about how you should function, and especially as a white uh, lady, woman, growing up and all. Uh, I was reminded of uh, Jacqueline Battalora. Uh, she was a guest on the program. Actually, she was a speaker at the White Privilege Conference I attended some years back in Wisconsin. Uh, and then she came, was a guest on the program a couple of times, and she talked about an experiment that she does with her students uh, in the Midwest. And she says she will tell them to go home and tell their mostly white students, tell them to go home and tell their parents that they're dating a black person. See what happens. She says with the white female students, their parents like that is not cool like what is going on what are you doing like we've taught you better this is a disgrace we did not like she said it would be a clear pattern not as much for white men uh i guess if folks remember uh halle berry monsters ball uh dark oak remember that line but for the white late and and not acceptable this is a clear violation of the white code and she tied this uh to her research which talks about long history of preserving protecting mm -hmm. white women uh you said that this came up with your parents around uh dating was it you wanting to date a black male specifically black person i'll take put it that way a black person specifically or a <laughs> person specifically you know no it was um that i started dating and i didn't realize um a person who was latinx right and so they um were very surprised by this and deeply uncomfortable right um and and it just kind of illustrated to me that I was like, oh, whoa, I thought like different things were happening here, <laughs> right? Like I thought it would be okay for me to like who I like, right? Or that sort of thing. And to kind of really, you know, where the rubber meets the road there to be like, oh no, like I have done something that they are not prepared for, right? And that they want to enforce this rule without like directly trying to say they're enforcing this rule, right? Because um, I think that parents can come up with these reasons, right? White parents where they're like, I don't know that that's how I raised you. Right. Which is them saying that instead of saying, I don't want you to date a person who's not white. 
they tend to not. I mean, I don't think maybe some parents are more direct about this. Um, but I think that was one of my first real encounters where I was like, oh, wait, hold on a second. What, what's happening here? Right. What, what am I missing about this? What do I not understand? Wow. You said a Latinx person. So this was someone mm-hmm. who definitely could not pass, would not be accepted as white. That's exactly right. Okay. And they were not pleased about this. Like Whoa. they were not happy with me. They were wow. not happy. with me. Yeah system of white supremacy sometimes they get very explicit we've heard from many white people that that's one issue where they can get very very explicit about things uh in fact seems like a religion uh you also you talk about the role of white women both with uh the siege january 6th and in general in the system of white supremacy in your research you talk about the role of religion in making these acts of violence mob terrorism white supremacy acceptable can you share Sure. Um, I think that one of the things to pay attention to with January 6th is that there were a lot of people that were shocked that there were religious symbols, that were Christian symbols, right, of the folks that stormed the Capitol. And for my research, um, it's very clear to me that um, for white folks, both past and present, that Christian identity has blended together with white supremacy and with nationalism and very much motivates them so that they see their religion working alongside with white supremacy. Now, they might not be direct and call it that. You know, the nice thing about working on the 1920s Klan with my research is that they were pretty direct that they were for white supremacy. That kind of directness doesn't entirely fly now. Um, But that those things work together for them. And they couldn't quite separate it out, right? Um, and so it didn't surprise me at all to see um, folks at the Capitol with crosses. <laughs> you know, I was like, oh, that makes sense. I've seen this before. On this uh, broadcast, because it's it's been so widespread, we've talked about the use of Christianity in justifying uh, slavery, uh, both here and worldwide, uh, not Mm -hmm. just something in uh, the U.S. and various components of of white supremacy racism. Uh, I've generally said I think it's accurate to say that racism, white supremacy is a religion. Frequently, they have the accoutrement of the, you know, they'll say that they're practicing Christianity. Even these lynching acts, these are religious rituals. They have the cross, they have the burning and what have you. Am I being, would it be accurate to say these are religious rituals, these lynchings? Oh, I mean, there are scholars that say definitely this is the case, right? Um, Donald Matthews has written about um, lynching and the Christian aspects of it. So I think that that's not wrong at all, right? That these are very much become religious rituals. And, um, and I, I mean, I think you could make an argument about how white supremacy is religion, right? Um, uh, the religious studies scholar in me um, wants to be a little bit more specific and say that um, from the research I've done, you know, it's not just religion here broadly, um, but it's those intersections with Christianity, you know, in American history that are so important. Um, so there's something about white American Christianity that works so well with white supremacist goals and aims. And so I want to keep that kind of specificity there. Right. Um, But I do understand what you're saying here. Hmm. 12 years we've been broadcasting. I had to go grab a book off my shelf. One of those programs, the color of Christ, 
the son of mm-hmm. God and the saga of race in America. We had uh, Edward J. Bloom on the program. In fact, if people, if you just listen to the beginning of that program, because we asked him about racist jokes and we got two great responses. We got one where it was similar that uh, he couldn't recall, but he gave lots of rich detail about growing up in the Midwest and derogatory mm-hmm. comments he heard about black people and the way that they talked about black people at high school uh, sporting mm-hmm. activities and blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, that was I'll pretty much take that for a racist joke. OK, lots of detail. But then he came around and gave another one about racist jokes. He's oh television program the office lots of racist jokes and blah blah blah, blah mm-hmm. really popular show and i went to watch and they do they even have racist jokes about santa claus has got to be white his book is all about how jesus has got to be white the mm-hmm. re- we asked them that the religion of white supremacy ah anywho uh i wanted to go back uh just make sure i didn't forget because i thought it was so important you were talking about how frequently with women, we don't think about them as being capable of violence. We think about them as being victims of mm-hmm. violence. Man, we've had Dr. Tommy Curry uh, on the program and Dr. Foster on the program. Their work talking about how we do not think about black males as victims of sexual violence. We do not think of white women as also being a part of the sexual violence and racist sexual violence against black males black females, black children. Is that something that you've looked at in your work? I haven't looked at it in my um, work at all, but I think what I would say here is it's so important about who gets to be a victim, right? And the sort of whiteness associated with that and gender associated with that. Um, So I'm not familiar with their work, but I'm entirely unsurprised by what they're arguing there. Um, Because I think once we look and see that, you know, white women and white children, you know, are understood as victims, and this is a role that they easily get slotted into. um, It's not surprising that so many other people would fall out of that so much that they couldn't even be considered, right? Like, people wouldn't even use that language to talk about them in some sort of way. Rethinking Rufus, Thomas A. Foster, he was with us about a year ago, big point of his book as well, and Dr. Tommy A. Cur- uh, talk- Dr. Tommy J. Curry, The Man Not Top Ten, excellent work as well. Um, with the Capitol siege, and we just had uh, Philip Dre on the program at the hands of persons unknown. That was one of the first books that I thought of when I saw everything unfold at the Capitol. Like, there's a long history of white mob violence, uh, unpunished white mob violence, hence the title of his book, At the Hands of Persons Unknown. The clips that I played at the beginning had all these different white women. Some of them even came from Beverly Hills, right? Like, I don't Mm -hmm. know what gripes they have. Like, Joe Biden has an agenda that white women in Beverly Hills, you are going to suffer for the next four years. Like, I, I missed that, I guess, in the debates. But they had lots of these white women and the white people in general. President Trump acquitted. Uh, they're out on bail. They're mm-hmm. not going to be detained. They said Rachel Powell, like she's got AK-47 ammunition and was right there breaking into the, eh, go home, wait for the trial. No big deal. You're not really, uh, even though she had her go bag packed, they said she had two of them. Eh, you're not a flight risk. You can go home and hang out, be a white mom, take care of your children. Are you, do you think we could see the same type of with the lynchings and historic mob violence where white people went unpunished? Do you think this could be the same type of thing where these, a lot of these white people end up being not punished? 
Oh, I think that's totally the case. Um, you know, and there are even examples. So there's um, this lynching that happens in 1915. It's the lynching of Leo Frank. Um, he's a Jewish guy, and he's lynched by um, white men and a white group who think that he has raped this white girl, right? And the accounts of this show that, you know, like the people who got to him to lynch him, right, got him out of jail, um, were involved at the jail, right? Were with friends with other people, involved prominent citizens um, in Athens, Georgia, where this happened. And so, you know, the guy dies and then folks aren't punished for this, right? Um and you see this with clan action, too, right? And that the clan gets away with terrorizing people. And it's not that they're brought to justice, right? That they can light a cross on a yard. And it's not like people are rushing to figure out who did this, right? To punish them in some sort of way. Uh, and so I think it's very much the case that some people get a free pass, even when the evidence is stacked against them, two go bags, right? <laughs> and some people don't. And that entirely has to do... Um, with race and the way that white people get off and don't face consequences of their action um, in the same way that non-white people do. Um, and I think, unfortunately, January 6th shows that this is a continued trend. It's not a moment where people are like, oh, no, we should totally punish, you know, the white men and women that are involved in this. Instead, it seems to be, oh, we'll give them a tap on the wrist while they hang out at home if we decide to move forward with prosecuting them if people yes i'm sure i feel like with the covid situation and everything else if we could just hold off to april a lot of folks will have moved on to something else there'll be a police shooting or another controversy or a fresh round something will be wrong with the vaccine like people have moved on and we won't even be talking about that like yeah let's move forward springtime we got other things to worry about um before I get to one of our callers, I wanted to ask about this date. Uh, does June 15, 1995, is that date significant to you for any reason? It is not. Now I feel like I should be Googling this to find out more. I would be curious if you Google that date, what pops up? Like I would be willing to bet a nickel it's going to relate to a rental James. That would be if I was betting a nickel, anybody, if you just Google June 15, 1995 and see what pops up, uh, you can do it at your leisure, what have you. But that date, uh, OJ Simpson murder trial. That's the date of the glove demonstration infamous. Oh gosh. So. Do you know that we watched that moment in my American history class? We were watching the OJ Simpson trial um, I had a black teacher. I was doing a dual enroll credit in my small town at the local college. And we watched the OJ Simpson trial with her. <laughs> like she would like show it to us and we would do this. And I can remember the glove conversation because she, um, there were some white students in class who really wanted to argue with her, right? That he had done it. And she just emphasized the glove, right? And, um, you know, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit, right? Uh, but that's wild. Wow. That is amazing. I can, you all watch this. How did your we parents allow this? Like, who yeah. did? Well, I think my mom and dad had no idea what happened in my classrooms. I like, I mean, 
more generally, right? I was a good student, so I don't think they paid attention. <laughs> but I remember this vividly because, like, the debate in our class over it was wild and unsurprisingly, God, I haven't thought about this in years, but unsurprisingly broke down via racial lines, right? With black students saying, no, you know, he is innocent. This is not fair. And white students, of course, being like, oh, no, he needs to be punished. Um, and um, just kind of watching that debate play out. That is amazing. Did you think he was uh, guilty at the time? You know, I remember thinking, like, maybe he's guilty. Maybe he's not. Um, but I also was so not like a sports person. So it's one of those things where I'm like, we're watching this in history class as history unfolds. But I didn't have like a strong feeling about paying attention to it. I just kind of remember us watching this and thinking like, oh, that's kind of interesting that we're supposed to be talking about like pilgrims right now. And <laughs> that's what we're doing instead. But it was, I mean, it was really fascinating. And um, the thing about that teacher, Miss McClendon, um, who was awesome, was that she just, she was like, no, we're going to talk about this and talk about why this is important, right? And what does this show us about America right now to be paying attention to this? So um, major props to her for just mm-hmm. like going all in um, for all of us terrible <laughs> teenagers. That is amazing. Yeah. That is amazing. I, I'm stunned that Mrs. McClendon didn't get fired uh, and ran out of town on a ramp, like watching the OJ trial in history class. But I mean, that is like, my goodness, that is absolute. We are watching history like yes. whew, a plus for Miss McClendon. She knew she was ahead of her time, like right on um, all of that back to June 15th. So we are reading Jeffrey Tubin's book, The Run of His Life. And the only reason we're reading it is because of his incident on Zoom. If he had kept mm-hmm. his pants zipped up, we would not be reading this book right now. But the stars were aligned. This is exactly what we're supposed to be reading right now. So on June 15, 1995, O.J. Simpson did try on those gloves. They didn't seem to fit. If you check the newspaper for the following day, the glove demonstration, that is front page, every major newspaper. However, if you look below the fold for the L.A. Times, this is also on the front page. I told folks the amazing number of things that happened during the O.J. Simpson trial, like one of them. Timothy McVeigh bombs the Oklahoma Mm -hmm. City building. So on June 15, after OJ tries on the gloves, militia leaders bring their fiery talk to Capitol Hill, hearing they claim mainstream roots, but voice fringe hostilities to senators. I'll read a little bit more. It says one thing should be said about the militia movement. Public relations is not its strong suit in their first joint appearance on Capitol Hill for a full blown nationally televised congressional hearing. Militia leaders from across the country claimed that their controversial movement is as benign as a neighborhood watch. That's important for one of Miss Baker's reports. But just this again is two months after Timothy McVeigh bombed the Oklahoma City Federal Building over 160 fatalities continuing yet they also warned darkly 
of angry Americans wreaking vengeance and retribution while predicting that time was running out before armed conflict erupted between the citizenry and the federal government. The hearing before the Senate Judiciary Committee on Terrorism was scheduled after the April 19 bombing of the federal building in Oklahoma City for which charges have been filed against two men who share the beliefs of many militia organizations, federal and local law enforcement officials who testified Thursday didn't attempt to link the militia organizations to the bombing, but they did warn that militia rhetoric is becoming increasingly explosive and that the belief that the federal government is the enemy of the people is now spreading through heavily armed militias in at least 39 states. And I will stop there again. This is the same day as the OJ glove demonstration below the fold. Uh, This is 25 years before Mm -hmm. the siege on the Capitol. And it sounds like I could have just changed the date and we could be talking about right now. And I keep, it seems like people are surprised. Like, where did this come from? How could we have this? And (laughs) it's a pretty straight line. I would say your thoughts. No, I think that one of the pieces that's interesting to me about that is that when I used to teach, um, I would tell students about like the 90s and the militia movements, right? The Oklahoma City bombing. And they were always like stunned by it, right? Like they couldn't understand that this thing existed and that people could be against the federal government. And one of the things I had to tell them is like, no, this is this is not new, right? Like it's not like suddenly in the 90s <laughs> there were white, the white people on the far right who were against you know, the government that these threads went further back in this history. And and so I'm always really, um, I'm going to be very honest here. I'm always really annoyed with um, the folks, um, particularly around like the January 6th insurrection, who are like, where did this come from? We had no idea. Who knew we could get here? And it's like, well, anybody that's paid attention to white supremacist movements, you know, in American history could tell you how we would get here. Um, And also, uh, if we've been paying closer attention to Trump's rhetoric, then maybe we could also see how that would lead to something like this, right? Like, I I can't understand the surprise um, because I feel like the writing's been on the wall. Does that make sense? For 25 years on the wall, apparently, (laughs) uh, at least. Uh, least. They had Senate committed hearings on terrorism. Like they should have had all kinds of information widely disseminated throughout the country and going to be on alert. We will never have another Timothy McVeigh, much less have, you know, thousands of them uh, invading Mm -hmm. the Capitol and causing mayhem and Timothy and Tina McVeigh's make sure I don't leave out the white women. Uh, Stephen Singular, just to make sure he was a guest on our program last month, his book, Legacy of Deception. He said, hey, Timothy McVeigh hung out in Idaho. Mark Furman retired and bought property in Idaho. These guys seem to have the same ideology and may have even hung out together. What do these two cases have in common that happened at the same time? O.J. Simpson trial bombing of the Oklahoma city building his book, Stephen singular, Mark Furman, uh, and even the LAPD in general. He said there were lots of Mark Furman's with similar views to Timothy McVeigh in the LAPD. And 
Anyway, I wanted to ask about Mark Furman because I think this is so important too. He sat on the on the witness stand in the criminal trial. He was being questioned by F. Lee Bailey. Mark Furman testified that he dropped out of high school, got a GED, and attended three different community colleges. Did you know that? I did not know that. And I didn't realize that it looks like he spent time in Florida, too. What is mm-hmm. it with Florida? My goodness. Um, but no, I didn't know that he had gone to three different community colleges. Um, I mean, so oh, go ahead. I was just going to add, he has the audacity. We're about to get to the Furman tapes and uh, Furman tapes in Jeffrey Tubin's book coming up in two days. But in those tapes, he has the audacity. I don't have anything against anyone with a GED. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying mm-hmm. Mark Furman had the uh, GED. Mark Furman had the audacity to say he is opposed to affirmative action because he doesn't like candidates who are not qualified. That was all I was going to add. I don't even know what to say, except it's not a surprise at the same time that it's profoundly disheartening um, that someone like that uh, was so over involved in this trial and um, that, you know, could become this expert figure and maybe shouldn't have been. I'm sorry, Arenthal James. I thought you were guilty all these years. And GED Mark Furman right in the middle of all of this. Uh, and even I just want to I'm going to get our caller, but I just want to make sure this is not an anomaly in the system of white supremacy. What I, I just I didn't know about this. He actually was on the stand. Apparently millions of people watched this GED dropped out of high school. This is the type of thing that black people normally get excoriated for. In fact, mm-hmm. that is what they said about the jury. That's how we got this verdict. We got all these dumb and ignorant black people on the jury who can't add two and two. And that's how we came up with this. And they're racist and hate white people. That's exactly what they said about the jury. Uh, But the reason with Mark Furman and the GED, they just had that huge scandal, the diploma mill and all of these white people who lied about their credentials. And, oh, I was 4.0 and I was on the skiing team and uh, academic honor roll all the time. Oh, you made all this up. You've never skied. You did not have all of this is a lie. And nobody gets put same thing. Nobody gets punished. Can't figure out anybody to indict about all of this. This is pretty common, even though it's also equally common to have white people just like Mark Furman meritocracy. Get your Mm -hmm. bootstraps, go to school and work. Do you even have a GED or did you lie about that, too? Just can you talk about the academic hypocrisy within white people in general? Well, I think it's one of these things where, and meritocracy is one of these ideas that really bothers me, right? This idea that somehow the system is based on merit and the best people get, you know, what they get and it's what they deserve. And we just know that this isn't how it works. Um, That often what matters more is that you're white and your family is connected. So you have opportunities that other people don't have, right? Um, 
you know, the whole system of legacy admissions at colleges, um, you know, families who are big donors, who kids get into these colleges, these elite colleges, this sort of thing. Um, so it's hugely problematic, but um, it does seem to be the case that uh, white people are deeply invested <laughs> in this narrative, right? That the reason that they're succeeding is because they're doing the best and they are the best. And that ignores all the kinds of factors that lead to their success that has nothing to do with talent, right? Or intelligence or any of these other sorts of things. It's more about who you know and where you're socially located. Um, and that is often, of course, not part of the conversation at all. 720-716-7300, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you have a question for our guest, Kelly J. Baker. Uh, the Black African, uh, if you have a question for Miss Baker, you should be with us, sir. Uh, thank you, guys. Um, I was wondering, are you the same Kelly J. Baker that wrote The Zombies Are Coming? I am. Um, so I was wondering, are, are zombies black people? Oh, so that's a good question. Um, so what I would say is that um, zombies often are more diverse in the movies and films and books, right? It's a more diverse crowd um, of white people and non-white people than there are of the folks who are surviving in these apocalypses, which tend to be white people. Um, and so part of what I talk about in that book is about how um, zombie apocalypse movies and films and these sorts of things are often white supremacists, right? The folks that they're targeting are non-white folks and that that should make us pause and think about what it means that they're so popular and people want to watch shows like that or TV or read novels. Um, there's a, I guess on, on Amazon, there's like a description. It says, our culture loves to imagine the world at its end, and some mm -hmm. Americans do more than imagine. They actually hope the zombie apocalypse will occur, and they are preparing for it. Um, and you say, just look at the rise of doomsday preppers, the ever-growing fascination with guns and personal arsenals, and the military's use of zombies and training exercises. Like the especially with the guns. Um, I'm just want, like, I'm just wondering, cause you, you, you have a background in studying, like, I guess um, racism and whatnot. Like, why didn't you like put two sort of like put two and two together that zombies are black people? Like, especially this prepping with guns and whatnot and like just, just cultural love. I think that's the term you use, our cultural loves. So I do write about this in the book where I talk about um, military training, right, where um, non-white terrorists are being targeted, but now they're being called zombies, right, about how they attach these two together. Um, I talk about the whiteness of doomsday preppers and how what they're often really worried about is um, people that don't look like them 
uh, and that that's kind of what they're preparing for. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think there's something to be said about the kind of monsters that appear and who they're supposed to stand in for. And um, I've always had this like underlying concern that with zombie movies, um, the that are just, I don't know, um, that they're just white supremacist narratives where white people get guns and they get to annihilate folks. And maybe we should just think about that a little bit more and pay attention to that. Um, There's another, I don't know if it's an article or book, it says Sexism Ed, Essays on Gender and Labor in Academia. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess it seems like you won an award for it. Um, do you, like in the workplace, do you have strategies on how like non-white people, maybe even specifically like non-white males, can counter white women practicing racism or like domination in the workplace? It's a good question. I don't particularly have strategies here um, about how to do that. I mean, it's one of those things that I know that happens, um, but I was not giving advice in that kind of vein in there. Um, That book is often about more, studies that we have about disparity in the workforce and, and these sorts of things and um, studies about hiring, right. And the kinds of names that people have um, and how hiring committees are racist <laughs> depending on name, right. Or sexist or this kind of thing. Um, but I don't have anything more than that. Um, are you, but you're a white woman. Yes. And it seems like you've studied gender and you've studied racism. So Like, I feel like, well, maybe I'm wrong. Um, Well, okay, I'll ask this. Have you practiced racism and domination in the workplace over non-white people, like black people, especially black men? Since I'm a black male, I'm sort of like, yeah, have you practiced racism and domination against black males in the workplace? Or have you seen other white women doing it? So I don't think I have. Um, I have seen other white women um, target black men and black women in particular as a way um, to exert their position and their dominance, right? And to kind of show people that they are the boss. Um, And so I've definitely seen that happen in these environments. Um, You know, I've seen white men that do this too. Yeah. So, um, so it could be, um, you know, white women, who were in charge of departments that I taught at, who, um, you know, treated the students who were assistants, who were black students, um, as if they were at her beck and call, right? Not as workers in their particular job, but asking them to do things beyond that, right? Um, And expecting this of them in some sort of way. Um, And not really giving them the option to say, this is not part of my job, this is not what I do, right? Um, To see that kind of thing. Um, And I think, there are strategies where you could find people in the workplace who could be allies for you to help kind of run interference if that happens. Um, and that, that could be white people that step up and are like, this is not cool, right? This is not acceptable. This is not how we handle ourselves at work. Um, 
but yeah, I've seen it happen. Um, and I've um, talked to people and strategized with them about how to like handle it. Right. And get around some of these obstacles. Um, but I do think you're right that this is something that just happens a lot, unfortunately, still. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, thank you, Gus. I'd be really interested in a book like that, like a book that just detailed white women, like terror, like just how terroristic they can be in the workplace and uh, some of your, like, just, just knowledge and your research and whatnot and your experience in academia and whatnot. But, yeah, thank you, Gus. Much obliged, the black African investor. Uh, he was at our yoga retreat, PA. Let me second that. I would love such a book. We would read it on the program. We have a weekly broadcast specifically on workplace racism. Mm -hmm. We have so many folks, uh, males and females, who dial in to share how they are mistreated in a variety of ways by white women in particular in the work, uh, workplace. So we would love uh, research talking about that specifically because I feel like that's another area that is uh, neglect, probably deliberately neglected uh, how terroristic white women are in the workplace. Like, whew, yes, more of research on that, please. Um, let's see our caller. Four or 6731. 6731. Did you have a question for Miss Kelly J. Baker? Yes, sir. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay. Okay. Uh, greetings, greetings, uh, Gus host, uh, listening callers and guests. Uh, I have two questions. Uh, I'm not sure what part of North Florida you're from. I spent some of my formative years in Jackson County. Oh, <gasps> no, no, stop, stop, stop. I'm in Jackson County. That's where I grew up. Really? Yes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, so the first question, uh, uh, did the Claude Neal tragedy affect your mm -hmm. area of study? So, um, I haven't written about Claude Neal, um, but I plan to at some point um, because I want to write a book on Jackson County and Claude Neal is key, right? The lynching of Claude Neal that happened here, um, but also um, the racist violence that happened at Dozier School in Jackson County too um, that I paid attention to as well. And the second question is, uh, I know the host asked questions about uh, uh, racist jokes. And, mm -hmm. and part of my formative years was going to elementary school in uh, Mariana. I uh, went to Riverside Elementary. And I remember being nine years old, playing with playing, playing friends, you know, watching TV. So we were playing Zorro. And I remember vividly and distinctly a younger, a young, younger child saying, Zorro went a nigger. And so my question is, this is a young child, and he has a thought process. So my question to you as a, someone who's a white person, is how is this type of thought process transmitted and what can be done to stop it? And I said, I'll be on my line, sir. Um, so I think that's a great question. And I think that a lot of that, those racist jokes and slurs are passed on just because there are white parents and white people around them that are modeling this, that find it acceptable to say this in some sort of way. Um, and so I think that's part of where it comes from, right? That this behavior is modeled, so you take it up. Um, I think 
one of the ways to stop this, right, is the kind of peer pressure that kids have about these sorts of things where someone that can say, no, this is not, this is not cool, right? This is not acceptable. Um, and I think, you know, that teachers can do that interaction. I think it can be other kids that do this too. Um, one of the things that I think is interesting is that um, one of my kids actually went to Riverside last year and I went through Riverside as well and um, had an experience where there were a couple kids on the bus making fun of a kid who spoke Spanish and um, and my kid was like you don't get to do this this is not nice and so when you have that kind of backup right or support or someone that can kind of correct it whether it's a kid a teacher right family, friend, a relative, then I think that's where we can have some of those early interventions happen. Um, because I think, unfortunately, um, th that kind of racist behavior um, is just so much the water that a lot of white kids swim in. And they don't realize um, until they're challenged, right, that this is not acceptable and this is not the way we should be in the world. Much obliged. Our caller in Florida. Uh, we've done broadcasts on the. We had one of the victims from the Dozier School on the program as well. Oh as, wow! Uh, Antoinette Har talk about black males as victims of sexual mm -hmm. violence. Bingo! Right there, uh, and then say it twice. Black males as victims of sexual violence. Claude Neal talked about that. A delectable Negro made him consume his own penis. I know. It's awful. Florida. Sunshine. Florida. Lots Florida. to be proud of. Uh, Emmy, I uh, hope you're warm and safe. I guess I could say that for lots of folks. Hope you're warm and safe. Uh, Emmy, if you have a question for Ms. Baker, you should be with us. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Mm -hmm. Welcome to the couch, and thank you for coming on and answering our questions. I have a question. I'm not 100% familiar with your work, but based all of, out of all of the research that you've done um, and being a white lady and having white family and white friends and being in academia, out of everything that you've looked at, what is the one thing that, and let me preface this by saying not that you wish that non-white people knew what white people went through or how they felt or anything like that, but what is one thing that if you were going to be absolutely transparent and honest that you wish that you could tell non-white people to solve the system of racism, white supremacy, and to combat the negative ramifications of being an oppressed, victimized people under white terrorists. Be 100% honest and transparent if you can. Thank you, and I'll mute my line. Oh, wow. Um Gosh, I I feel like this is such an important and big question. I'm just afraid that I'm going to mess it up. Um, honest and transparent about what non-white people need to know about battling this system. I mean, I just have this sense, and that maybe. <laughs> so let me let me tell a story instead and see if I can get somewhere to there. So I did this talk um, a while ago at a predominantly white college, right? 
and uh, I was talking to a group of students who were talking about racism, and a young black woman asked me, um, you know, how she could trust the white people around her, right? Are they trustworthy? You know, should she give them trust just kind of blatantly, right, and just kind of offer it up? And, um, and I told her that I didn't think she should, right, that that was not required on hers, that she had to trust these people because she went to college with them and knew them, um, that people had to show that they were trustworthy, that white people had to show that they were trustworthy. And I mean, and I think that's important there, um, that, that trust is something that matters a lot in this and who we have solidarity with and who we can believe in and who we can count that's on our side. Um, and that I'm just not sure we can think that white people are inherently trustworthy because of this white supremacist system. Um, and that white people have to show up so you know that they're in the fight with you, um, instead of kind of lukewarm there or only dipping their toe or that they're not gonna risk anything or have any skin in the game. I hate that phrase, but I think it works here. answer your question Emmy sorry I had muted myself um so if I can just uh, tell you what I heard okay I heard you say that what you would tell non-white people as a way to combat racism and white supremacy is to not trust white people because people who are classified as white are not inherently trustworthy or deserving of their trust is that correct so what I'm saying is that not all white people are deserving of trust, right? That white people aren't guaranteed trust of non-white people just for existing in this world, right? Um, and so that for you to trust that someone is in it with you, to trust that you have white people who are allies, then they have to show up and prove that they're trustworthy. So I guess that's what I would say is that you need that white people have to prove their trustworthiness, right? And that that is important to know about this. Um, and instead of just assuming that everyone is on your side, right? Um, maybe that's too harsh. I don't know. Well, I would say I don't think that non-white people overall actually think that all white people all are on our side. Um, and then I guess my follow-up question would be, how does a white person besides talking or writing about racism and white supremacy prove that they're trustworthy or earn the trust of non-white people? Thank you. Yeah, no, it's a great, I think that's a great question. And I think the way that white people can prove that they're trustworthy is not talking about what they've read, right? Or um, wearing a t-shirt with a slogan, but it's, you know, are you giving money to causes um, when people need money, um, are you helping folks organize protest? Are you putting forth work where you can use the talents that you have and your resources to actually fight for justice in some sort of way, right? So that the people that are actually doing things that will make a material difference, right? Um, rather than doing some of the more performance-based thing here. Um, and I think that's the way that people can do this, right? Not by just like talking about it, but actually like 
investing themselves in it, right? Mentally, emotionally, physically to do this kind of work um, to make sure that we're actually going to get somewhere um, and have racial justice. Um, and I think that that's the most important. Much, that was all I have. Thank you. much obliged, Emmy. Uh, let's see our caller one, one, five, nine, one, one, five, nine. Uh, did you have a question for Kelly J Baker? Um, yes, sir. Um, Miss Kelly, thanks for being on the, on the show and greeting guests and callers. My question is, um, Ms. Kelly, do you think um, it would be um, constructive and um, getting um, black people closer to um, justice on planet Earth if all victims of racism, black and non-white people, were suspicious of every single white person on planet Earth? <laughs> oh, I don't... Uh... Like the optimistic side of me says, don't be suspicious of every single white person in the world. Um, But I also feel like we're in this system of white supremacy, right? So there are benefits that white people have um, in this white supremacist system. And sometimes I don't know that they're thinking about the benefits and opportunities and these sorts of things. Um, But that means that their aims and goals are inherently about keeping this oppressive system in place. Um, So I think some suspicion is necessary in that, right? Um, I don't want to throw all white people under the bus here um, with this, because I think there are folks, white folks, who are committed um, to justice and equity and equality and those sorts of things. but I, I do, again, think that people have to really, like, show, white people really have to show that they are there to do the work and that that's important um, in some sort of way. Thank you. You're welcome. Under the bus, metaphor. Under the <laughs> I know, I know. Oh. Let's see. Other folks who dialed in. Uh, da, 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 da. Thomas in New York, did you have a question for Kelly J. Baker? should be with us. Good evening, Gus. Good evening, Miss Baker. Um, I had a few questions. Um, who's more responsible for teaching the practice of racism, white supremacy? Is it white mothers or white fathers? Oh, that's a good question. So um, there are a lot of good books out right now about white women and white supremacy. Um, One of them is by Elizabeth Gillespie, and it's called um, Mothers of Mass Resistance. I think that title is right. I would have to double check off my shelf. But um, one of the things she talks about is how formative mothers are to perpetuating systems of racism. So she's talking about mothers who are observing things about dating, right? Mothers who are in classrooms, um, white women who are mothers who are designing curriculum, right? And putting pressure on public schools to do things in certain ways. So white mothers are deeply formative here um, because uh, mothers are still so responsible 
for care work and labor and these sorts of things. I think white fathers are formative in different ways um, from like the rhetoric and language and these sorts of things and also can be about dating and this. But I think white mothers do a lot of the on the ground work of making sure that racism stays in place. Well, thank you for that answer. Um, you guys had a dialogue, you and Gus, earlier um, about a public lynching during your conversation. Um, do you think the videos of black people being um, shot or choked to death on TV um, by police um, playing over and over again in the media, is that a, do you think that's the equivalent of a public lynching? <sighs> I don't know. Um, I think when we talk about lynchings that happen historically, um, we're talking about these executions happening in front of people who are know about it, who are showing up, you know, who have picnic baskets, who are taking pictures, this sort of thing. Um, so there's that kind of strange community element to it, right? Um, and we can see this when we see like lynching photography and, you know, the people that are there like hanging out and smiling. And it's really kind of a ghastly thing um, to witness and see. Um, so I don't I don't know. I mean, I wonder if those are on autoplay because there are folks that want to consume that. Right. Who want to see that happen. Um, uh or if it's just that the news media understands that this is going to draw clicks and attention in that kind of really cynical way and my approach to um, media. So I'm just, I'm not sure. I'm not entirely comfortable saying it is. Does that make sense to you? I'm sure that's your answer. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> um, do, you, um, do you think that the white feminist movement um, has strengthened the system of white supremacy? Say that one more time for me. Do you think that the white feminist movement has strengthened the system of white supremacy? Oh, that's a good question to you. Um, so I think that white feminism has not done enough to think about racism and white supremacy. I think that there is a way that often with white feminism, there's an assumption that women are universal, right? Like that there's a universal category of women that we're all talking about. Um, and it completely ignores the intersections and identities. Um, so in that way, I do think that white feminism can shore up white supremacy and further it. Um, you know, and these might be folks that don't mean for that to happen, but unless they're really directly thinking about um, the place of racism in that movement or the place of identities and intersections of oppression, then they're not questioning the white supremacist status quo, which leads to it continuing and not being dismantled. I'm sorry. My very last question, um, just to follow up to that. Do you think that black women should, um, be feminists? Um, um, under based off of what you just said, uh, do you think that that would be a smart move for black women to make? So I wouldn't tell um, black women or any women actually um, that they would have to be feminist, right? Um, 
I think that feminism can mean a lot of things and it can have um, different baggage attached to it depending on who's practicing it and what they're calling for. Um, I think that um, we can be committed to um, understanding that men and women um, have the same rights and opportunities and um, abilities uh, instead of men having more advantages, opportunities, um, these sorts of things, and kind of understand that as an important thing to do. Um, and that's like the most like, you know, basic kind of definition of feminism. So I, I would like folks to be on board with that. Um, but I'm not comfortable telling folks that they have to participate in this in some sort of way. Again, because that identity work is important, right? Um, you know, not all feminist movements are anti-racist movements. Um, and they uh, can be exclusionary instead of being inclusive. And so I think that we kind of have to figure out what those movements look like and whether they are welcoming and would further the aims of people with different identities, too. Much obliged, Thomas in New York. I uh, hope that wasn't a smoke alarm in the background. Safety, warm and safe. Uh, let's see. Retired firefighter in New York. Uh, did you have a question for Kelly J. Baker? Retired firefighter in Florida. You with us? Maybe muted. Might have muted. Still not hearing you. Still not hearing you. Retired firefighter in Florida. Greetings. greetings. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Got you now. Yes, sir. Uh, can you hear me? Yes, yes sir. Yep. Okay. Uh, I wanted to uh, uh, ask the uh, the uh, the guests about uh, encounters of sex between white people and non-white people, uh, primarily because of uh, how powerfully influential it is, uh, the people activity of sex. And my question is, is uh, should white people under the global system of racist white supremacy not, be, well, should they be committed to not be engaged in sexual contact or conversation with non-white victims of racism, white supremacy, as long as such thing exists. I don't know that I necessarily have an answer for that. Um, I am pretty committed to love is love, and so that people um, should love who they love and that that should be where it stands. Um, I do think that we have to pay careful attention um, to what that means for some people, that it's not going to be the same based on our identities and that definitely this question of white supremacy should linger in the background and that um, folks should be paying attention to that. Um, but I think that's about all I have to say on that one. Okay. Uh, 
from your understandings uh, have uh, sex between white people and non-white people neutralized or have the potential to neutralize the system of racist white supremacy? So the question is, like, will these relationships, right, um, interracial relationships, somehow mute the effects of white supremacy? Is that right? Uh, I don't use the term interracial. Okay. I just use the term of sex between white people and the victims of racism and white supremacy, which are non-white. Okay. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I think there is often an argument that, um, that it could somehow neutralize white supremacy. Um, but I'm not could you, could sure. Could you explain how? So I think there's an idea that people have that if we have more and more encounters, right, just even casual encounters, not even talking about sex, with people who are different from us, right, that this will somehow change our minds and make things better. Um, and, I mean, maybe that works. Uh, I tend to be skeptical and think that there are bigger issues at play here and that um, relationships could make a difference. Um or they could not, right? And the system still is upheld. I think it depends on the people, the individual people that we're talking about um, and how they understand themselves and the other people that they are interacting with. Yes, ma'am. I, I, I mean, specifically white people and non-white people. And based on your understandings and hopefully honesty uh, that you can explain to us on how over centuries under a system of racism and white supremacy has sex between white people and their victims have neutralized the system of racism and white supremacy. So what do you mean by neutralize? I, I am avoiding I am avoiding purposely the term improve. Okay, so so you mean the long history of coerced relationships, right? Um, uh, what, what what what? How did you explain it? So I heard so what relationships. I, yeah, I. So what was, what was the word before that you used? I said coerced, right? So I don't I think the problem is I don't understand the kind of history that you're trying to track. Um, you know, are we tracking a history that involves slavery, right? And rape and assault um, and the inability for any consent in these kinds of sexual relationships? to today I mean, when I, you know i mean the overall i mean the overall encounters of sexual encounters between white people and non-white people whether it was forced whether it was uh on the behalf of someone where they uh decided to uh make a go at it or not has that in collective uh, 
neutralize the system of racist white supremacy, in your opinion? That's what I'm asking for your opinion and thoughts on that. I don't think that I, yeah, no, I don't think that I could say that over that it would necessarily neutralize a system of white supremacy. Have you noticed the encouragement of such a uh, venture? Commercials, movies? I think that there is often an attempt, right, to show this and to show um, that there's potential there, right, um, to... I guess, dismantle some of these systems about purity and sex that exist, right? And the way in which <sighs> these are held up in dating rituals or this sort of thing. So I do think, you know, you do see um, couples on TV or in movies or something like this. And so that those representations are more common. I think the question is, um, you know, what kind of work are they doing, right? Does this neutralize um, white supremacist Re- ideas. Yes, right, Result. like, yeah, right. Does it actually lead to something in one way, shape, or form? Um, and so I think it could, right? Because, I mean, when you have representation, representation is important, right? We can't always imagine what we can't see. So being able to see this is good. Um, that larger question of, you know, how that works in the world and what people do with it, I think is a harder one to answer. We'll pause there. Retired firefighter. I want to make sure I get all the folks in who have questions. Yes, yes, sir. Our caller, uh, Alex in Austin. Did you have a question for Kelly J. Baker? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, thank you, Gus and uh, guest. I was curious, um, uh, Kelly, do you think it would be beneficial in the overall kind of work towards justice and to rid the world of racism, white supremacy, would it be beneficial for white people, so-called white people, to begin to abandon the terminology or the term white to, to wholly wholesale abandon this, this term white in order to, uh, to, to conceptualize themselves, describe themselves, um, yeah, just in, in, in self-identification and common casual use, um, in filling out censuses, et cetera. Would that be beneficial in your opinion? So that's a really fascinating question about whether if we shift away from that label of white, right, or that identification of white, if that would somehow have an impact, right, on this larger system of white supremacy. So if we take the, like, white out of that um, in some sort of way, um, I... I'm curious as to what that would look like, right? Like if we said, okay, like this is not the language we're going to use anymore. We're going to think about a different language. We're going to use a different label. Um, I think it could do something and it could maybe be effective. Um, I think though we still have to deal with that large history um, of white people, right? And understanding what that means. And um, the way the word white (laughs) labels a certain type of people, you know, um, as the ones who are at this top of this racial hierarchy. 
and um, what history you inherit as a white person based on the fact that this racial hierarchy has defined so much of our history and how we understand different peoples. Um, and so, it, I mean, it would be kind of lovely if we could just kind of shuck the term and then move on to something different. But I think we still haven't quite grappled with the history of that and um, the problems with whiteness uh, that we need to do or just changing that label is not enough. Does that make sense? It does, it does. Yeah. I think that, so in, in that, if say white people were to start calling themselves Irish American, Italian American, right. Norwegian American, that would not necessarily rectify or deal with that, that historic kind of tailwind that was brought right. here. I get that. My, yeah. I have a follow-up question, if I may, sure. real quick, Gus. Um, and, and I'm sorry, I must have missed this, but I think, like you said, you maybe grew up in a mostly white, mostly kind of conservative context. Uh, yes. In conservative, maybe racism, maybe you hear racism, see uh, semblances of racism. I'm curious, like in just your experience growing up, in private conversation, whether with friends or family or otherwise, was there a, do you remember, was there a context of uh, referencing so-called white people as a kind of global numeric minority? Was this a, 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 a topic that would come up that, in fact, we are the, the global minorities and this is kind of why we do this? Was that a, was that a topic that would come up? And I'll mute my line. Thank you. Yeah, Doug. no, I, I think that's a great question to you. And so I didn't, grow up with people that necessarily had this kind of white people or the global minority. I often grew up with people instead who were like aggrieved, right? That they thought that white people were being attacked, right? Or that they thought that white people were being misrepresented or, you know, if you're going to look at the long history um, of who has been attacked, it was white people. So it's very much this kind of narrative that despite white people having this long dominant history, right, that now that they're the ones that are being oppressed and punished, um, which, I mean, doesn't take much pushing to realize like how unreasonable that position is, but it's very much that kind of like aggrieved, like people are not fair to us. There's affirmative action, right? These sorts of talking points that were a part of that, um, which was much more what I experienced, right? Um, you know, people that were talking about like um, reverse racism, which is a term I haven't heard in like years and years and years. And, um, and but th they thought that that was actually a thing when it's not, right? Um, white people who wanted to claim that this is what they were experiencing. And it's like, this just doesn't make sense. But we're committed to that and understanding that. Much obliged to Alex and Austin. Before we nab our next caller, I uh, just wanted to get in quickly. Uh, one, watch that word conservative. Uh, we're in a system of racism, white supremacy, where sometimes you have individuals who classify themselves as white, say they are conservative. Sometimes they say they are liberal. At the end of the day, we still end up in a system of white supremacy. Uh, also with white people, discontinuing the use of the word white Noel Ignatiev uh, mm -hmm. suggested that sort of thing he was a guest on our program many years ago it was not logical at all uh, and in fact that's been incurred like Noel Ignatiev is not a 20 year old so I mean I've not seen much fruitful uh, come from this this theory or this option that white people will just voluntarily 
let go of the term white. And I might submit Brazil as an example of a place where you don't really have tons of people going out and flagrantly identifying as white per se, but you still for sure have a system of white supremacy and they spent a good chunk of the last year protesting police. In fact, the police terrorism against black people is even worse there uh, because they have way more black people uh, in Brazil. But I think that might be one example that that does not really get to the root of the problem. Uh, The caller caller in Canada. Did you have a question for Kelly J. Baker? You should be with us. Oh, hi, Kelly. This is, uh, Victor from Toronto, Canada. Hi there. Hi. Um, I just wanted to talk about what is your definition of whiteness? Uh, um, only the easy questions here, right? Um, so when I think about whiteness, I think of whiteness as a system, right? So yes, there are white people, right? People that have been marked as white and have this history that they can move through in some sort of way. Um, But I see it as also the ways in which people can move through the system, right? So whiteness is... um, cultural capital, right? It opens doors for people. It lets them in. It gives them opportunities that they might not have. It means that they're treated differently in the justice system. It means that um, their political rhetoric maybe isn't considered as serious, right? Because they might say these awful things, but like, who cares, right? They're, they're just saying things and they don't really mean them. Um, so that there's a whole system here instead of just attaching it to people, it's attached to ideas, it's attached to institutions, these sorts of things. Um, so for me, it's much, much larger than just kind of following white people around. Um, and I mean, and this is part of the way I understand white supremacy too, right? That it's a structure and a system and um, that there are markers that people get that determine their sort of path, right? Um, about who is white and who is not and, and what this means about how you experience the world and how differently that happens. Okay, thank you for that because um we we um on the show yesterday there was a guest and she used the word whiteness and there were some callers that were prompting her to make her understand that it's it's a very as a victim of white supremacy i identify myself as a victim of white supremacy so when a white person says the word whiteness it's very vague and unclear because from my understanding, I'm subject to a system of white supremacy racism, a global system. So at my understanding that the people who practice white supremacy are classified as white and they are racist men and racist women. So whenever you use the term whiteness, it's very vague and it causes me to be confused. So that's that's why I posed the question, what's your definition of whiteness? Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you for the question. Much obliged. Uh, I think we got all our folks who had a question. Uh, yes, got all the folks who had a question. I'll make sure to get in uh, 
my uh, other question. This is one I've been pondering on uh, for some time. I just want to make sure that we do have a common set of facts that I haven't got got a hold of fake news. Uh, <laughs> so the Boy Scouts of America, they're bankrupt uh, because of countless sexual abuse, uh, sexual abuse uh, allegations. Uh, the Catholic Church, same thing, sexual abuse allegations rife and lots of evidence that this misconduct was known about and covered up and all of that. Again, uh, you can't even count the numbers. Uh, the Jerry Sandusky, Jeffrey Epstein, same thing, sexual abuse of children, even though these are not institutions, these are individual people. Although uh, with Jeff- Jeffrey Epstein, there was some institutional indictment saying, hey, how did the- was this allowed to continue? And he's indicted and he gets, you know, these really lame charges that seem to have that as a thing. White people not being held accountable uh, and charged appropriately. But uh, Jeffrey Epstein, uh, Jerry Sandusky, individual uh, sexual misconduct. Uh, even if we want to look at the institution of slavery institutionally, there were lots of black children uh, who were slaves, auctioned, raped, abused, whatever other terrorism that you can fit under slavery. It happened to black children. And even specifically, we talked about sexual intercourse. They talk a lot about so-called romance between Thomas Jefferson, Sally Hemings. Thomas Jefferson was an adult white male racist. Sally Hemings was like 14 when they were engaged in sexual intercourse. That is a child. I'll stop there. That's why I said, I want to make sure we're working with a common set of facts. What everything that I've just said to your knowledge, these, this is all factual, correct information. If I've said anything incorrect, please point that out. Oh, to me. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Talk um, to you. So no, I mean, I think uh, I didn't know about the boy scout bankruptcy scandal. Um, I did know about um, the cases of sexual assault involved with that. Um, But yeah, I mean, there's this larger question of um, I haven't got to my question yet. I just want to make sure we're yes, I just got to make sure we're working with the common set of facts. We're mostly on the same board. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Continuing the same set. (laughs) Uh, White people collectively have bragged about dumping their white offspring on black people. And when I say that, they have songs like Mammy, they have books and movies like The Help. And I mean, talk about generations of white people bragging about, for whatever reason, dumping their offspring. We've had white people who've uh, written novels about this. Valerie Jackson, her book Property, which focuses on white women's role on the plantation. She has all those gross scenes where the white woman is sexually abusing black children in some instances. That was uh, 2012. Uh, But that is rife uh, throughout the history of slavery uh, and beyond even because the help is not a plantation novel per se. That's like set in the 1960s, 1950s Mississippi, even though it still has a very plantation feel, but that's the same type of thing. White people bragging about dumping their offspring off onto uh, black nursemaids and mammies and that sort of thing. I suspect even in Florida, a long history of a lot of white people bragging about having done this for many years. I'll pause there. Is that, is that accurate? I think there, there's a long, long history, even in Florida, right, of um, black women in particular, right, taking care of white children. Okay. All of that, uh, I was going to put in Sandy Hook, Columbine, 
Parkland, there have been a number of shootings at the schools as well. I put all of this together and I say, wow, it seems like a major component of white culture, and it would be worldwide with a lot of these, but a major component seems to be a total lack of regard for children. That seems to be the underlying theme within all of these. And I mean, I could even go more because I just, I'd started thinking about this. This is not something that I'd really researched. There's not a lot of literature that really seriously interrogates, like what are some of the components of white culture? And even with some of these, like the, the sexual abuse components, even when it's white people are reluctance to prosecute, even Bill Hodgman, he was one of the prosecutors with the OJ Simpson trial. He continued, he was involved with the Catholic church and he ended up uh, being a part of changing some of those logs because it was so difficult to do prosecutions because it was, Oh, it's, you know, statute of limitations has passed. We can't, you know, deal with that. Sorry that happened to you, but nothing. Can, same thing with Jeffrey Epstein. Ah, nothing we can do about that. Sorry. This happened a long time ago. Do you think that's an accurate critique that that's something that should be investigated. There seems to be an overall disregard for children collectively within white culture. I think that it is definitely the case um, that the lack of action on both sexual assault um, cases and um, mass shootings that happen at schools show that, um, that children are just not on the radar in some of these instances. And, or at all, right? That um, there's no problem um, here with this happening to children because there's not enough um, intervention that happens here. Um, I don't know that I would say particularly that this is a white people problem, though I could see the ways in which that works. Um, But I just do think there's this blatant disregard um, for the safety and protection of children that seems to happen um, in the U.S. a lot, um, and it's profoundly upsetting. Um, it's remarkably disturbing to me as someone who has kids how um, that violence against children just seems, or people assume that it's normal, not enough to question it, and I definitely think that that shouldn't be the case, but um, seems to be very much where we are a lot of the time. I'm going to have to think about in in what was the lead. What made me start thinking about that was not the way that white people treat black children. That's obvious. Mm -hmm. The way white people treat white children, white people brag about not taking care of their own children and leaving them to the care of black people who they have said are savages and animals, not even humans. But here, take care of my and not take care of my 15 year old or my 10 year old here. Take care of my newborn. I got to go out and, you know, rule the world. We'll see you. in I don't know. We'll see you sometime. Just take care of my. I mean, they brag about doing that sort of thing. I just that's accurate. Yes. I think what I would say is that part of the issue here is it's about power. Right. And that assumption of power. So white people who. um don't go through with child rearing responsibilities, right? It's because they want to still work to control the world, right? And control the culture. And so they expect to have support systems in place, right? From wherever those come from. And so those critiques that are often lobbed at non-white people, right? And insults and slurs, um, 
somehow go by the wayside when um, white women need someone to take care of their children, right? White men and white women so that they can go on to be politicians or go on to be judges or do these sorts of things, right? Or just that they want to live their lives in a certain way. Um, And I think that suggests something to me about um, the sort of entitlement that comes with white supremacy um, that white people have, that the world is to be theirs. And so, they're going to do what they have to to guarantee that that happens, even if that doesn't necessarily always mesh so seamlessly with their racism, right? Or, um, or their expectations about other people. Um, and so I, I really see those coming together in that way, right? Um, is that for white people to be able to do what they want to do in this world, they sometimes have to compromise those ideologies they have. And maybe it's not even compromise, right? It's that they assume um, that they're going to have help and that they're going to get that help wherever they need to and that they're not going to be bothered by it. Mm. Something I would encourage non-white people to uh, think about, certainly a sense of entitlement that you, that's what the book is called, the help People get all kinds of assistance in child rearing and all other aspects of my life <clears throat> of, of their lives. But I also think it certainly uh, would make me make an assessment of what is the value that we place on children in a system like this. Uh, something to ponder on, at least in my view, we've chatted it up. Kelly J Baker uh, talking about the mob violence. Some of her writings, you can check out her book gospel, according to the Klan, the KKK's appeal to Protestant America, 1915 to 1930. Uh, she just had an interview in the New York times a century ago, white Protestant extremism marched on Washington. Uh, it has been a hoot uh, chatting this evening. Uh, we will keep an eye on your writing. I'm sure there'll be more uh, racism to investigate the book on white women's terroristic behavior in the workplace. You have a waiting audience. <laughs> it seems so. It seems so. I'll have to, I'm going to have to think about that one um, because that would be an interesting book to research and write. Um, and I think it would probably be a really useful book too. Um, but, uh, it would probably be something <laughs> to dig into. Wide open field. It's rife. White women are frequently ignored. Much obliged for your time and insight. Uh, we will be looking out in the future. Uh, stay warm. Thanks. I appreciate it. Um, I hope you do too trying my best trying my best uh we will be in touch uh evening kelly j baker all right have a good evening thank you so much you too context of white supremacy kelly j baker white woman uh we've been speaking this evening about white supremacy racism her views talked a lot about the role of white women again my well thank you for your patience i'll say it that way we uh had slight tech difficulties at the beginning of the program and I was a little discombobulated. I didn't get to just listen to the uh, audio segment at the beginning again for the folks in the archives should be fine, but that kind of this settled things a little bit, but I was like kind of able to get things back together, get the call working correctly. Uh, but I hope folks were able to hear the audio segment again. It could have been way more uh, the number of white women who participated in the violence uh, last month, uh, it was not just 
white men. You cannot have a system of white supremacy racism without white women. That's it. We'll see what folks, uh, if they have comments to share. Uh, I'm going to take a quick commercial break, see if I can get water. So looking forward to O.J. Simpson. That is crazy. She said she had a black teacher. I would have been scared to death. A black teacher teaching white students. And we're going to watch the O.J. Simpson trial in history class. Like, oh, my gosh, like, we're going to get. And that trial lasted for like a year, almost like 10 months, January to October. Like, man, we're going to get fired. I am going to get fired. You all will just have a new teacher. But wow. Uh Man, I don't know if that could have happened now. I think somebody would have have snitched and uh, they would have had meetings and all kinds. They said nigger about 50,000 times in the trial. Like, anywho, we'll do a quick commercial and then we'll chat it up. See if folks have any final thoughts before we conclude context of white supremacy. Is racism hurting you? On issues of race, are you unable to speak, think, and act with clarity and confidence? Are you tired of laughing when nothing is funny, smiling when you are not happy, agreeing when you really disagree? Counterracism.com, you can learn specific strategies and techniques to counter the behaviors of the people who practice racism in all areas of activity. Using words correctly, following counter-racist logic, even counter-racist science projects designed to reveal what racism is, how it works, and how to counter it. The open source code writing format allows you to pick and choose from a variety of counter-racist suggestions so you can produce the code that works for you. Stop by counterracism.com today and help replace racism with justice. That's counter-racism.com. All participants are unmuted. Q&A session is over. Q&A session has started. All righty. Context of white supremacy. We should be here on Thursday. The book club, the Furman tapes, as I said, Mark G.E.D. Furman, that should be Thursday. Looking forward. We're almost done with Jeffrey Tubin's book, The Run of His Life. It has been a learning experience uh, with the whole O.J. Simpson trial. Uh, you can learn a lot about white supremacy, racism, the Furman tapes and I, the Furman tapes, even that right there. White people did an extraordinary job with the Furman tapes. I said at the very beginning, if you had come and said, hey, Gus, you you're so some some quasi expert uh, on with some pseudo expert right on racism, white supremacy. What's on the Mark Furman tapes? I would have had no idea. I would have been totally guessing like he said, nigger. No, no, no. no. Give me some details. He called O.J. Simpson a nigger. Uh, I don't know. 
like I, I wouldn't have even had a guess beyond there in terms of what he said, what is the substance of it? Like even the fact that I think it's, if you ask most people, it would just be an association that, Oh, okay. He was on the recording saying nigger a bunch of times, which he did. That is true. However, he said substantially more than that. I mean, routinely talking about lying on the witness stand, planting evidence. If I see a white woman, excuse me, what did we talk about this? If I see a white woman with a black male, that's a reason to stop him right there. If they're not doing anything wrong, I make up a reason. Totally different analysis, thought process about everything like, and they've done such a great job of hiding these tapes. You didn't have the internet like it was, or the you didn't have the internet in the way that it is today back in 1995. So it wasn't like you could just go on YouTube, you know, and just download well, let me, you know, download the whole video of the O.J. Simpson trial for today and watch that at my le- uh, leisure, right? You couldn't just do that or watch it on your phone, you know, at your leisure. You couldn't do that. Uh, and basically it was if you did not watch live, you did not get like the full unedited this is what he said. This is what, you know, is on these tapes in the recording. It is amazing like that. I had, I had not heard. I didn't know anything about it. Like I can under white people are amazing. They are so skillful at willful concealing of constructive information. Like the Furman tapes alone would be enough to be like, Oh yeah. Toss this case out immediately. I can't emphasize enough. The jury didn't even hear the firm, like the people that are like, oh, this case was about racism, and ignorant black jurists. And blah, blah, blah. They didn't even hear the firm. They played like a sentence that they, they have an audio segment where a white uh, woman, she's doing a news clip and she says, uh, if you hiccup, you'll miss the portion of the audio that they play for the firm tapes for the jury. When the jury was out of the courtroom, they did play the entire unedited Furman tape. So it'll be in the trial transcript, which it is. You can get the trial transcript now and just read it. But I mean, the jury did not hear that. And most people have not gone through to read the O.J. Simpson trial transcript. I don't think uh, and have not watched the whole thing. It is just for that alone. It is amazing. Uh, and that period of time with it, man, audio tape or excuse me, the book club the Furman audio Thursday. I'm so excited. And even before it's like so much of that episode, like I have to slow it down. There's so many moments that you would have to whoop, wait a minute, stop and dissect. Even before we get there, the sounding black that became a big deal in the courtroom. Now I have to slow down to hear that the freaking doctor uh, for OJ Simpson. This is a witness who has been called to testify on behalf of OJ Simpson. He didn't do it. You're here to support our client. This white doctor gets on the witness stand and compares OJ Simpson to Tarzan repeatedly. He says it so many times. In fact, when he gets cross-examined, now the prosecution is coming to try and, you know, poke holes, as they say, in what he's saying. They're just using the same reference. So, so was OJ Simpson walking like Tarzan when you saw him on this date? So was he walking crippled this state or was he walking like Tarzan, like on and on and on? Like you could do a search in the trial transcript to see how many times Tarzan was said, all of them in reference to OJ Simpson. 
That's just to get to the Furman tapes. Sounded black, Tarzan, Furman tapes. Looking forward to Thursday. O.J. Simpson. Uh, our guest for the day's program, Kelly J. Baker. Be interested if folks have commentary. If we can remember, I am still learning. We're all still learning. If we can remember, we are not educating white guests. If anyone is ignorant, still learning about racism, <clears throat> it is us non-white people. We are just asking questions. Uh, said this, when we had our white guest on Philip Drake last month. There's no need to explain why you asked a question at all ever to a white person. No need to explain at all. We are not helping their understanding. That is not going to uh, get them to understand. Oh, maybe I should not practice racism. It's probably not even going to change <clears throat> the way that they are speaking in terms of if they did say whiteness or whatever the case may be, they're probably not going to refine their speech in a constructive manner to work against racism. And even if they do, it's probably just going to mean refining how they practice racism, white supremacy. Again, you can boil all of this down to efficiency. We do want to make time to get to as many listeners as possible with questions, but there's also, we are not operating under the rubric that white people need to have some component of white supremacy, racism explained to them, or they do not even need the rationale for why we ask the question not needed at all. Folks who dialed in, if you have thoughts, observations, what we heard from Kelly J. Baker. Uh, let's see. Uh, retired firefighter Thomas in New York, the black African, any other folks who dialed in with a hand up line should be open. I guess if there are folks who missed totally, uh, if you did not get to ask a question, share a thought uh, and you have an observation, you should go ahead and get a hand up and we'll get you on the line as well. Uh, otherwise, folks who dialed in, launch should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Retired firefighter in Florida. Yes, sir. Uh, based on the uh, the question that I asked the guest, uh, it seems as though, and I use the term committed, uh, she didn't seem to want to uh, be committed on uh, answering uh, the question about about the sexual uh, relationship between white people and non-white people. Uh, and uh, I, I wasn't surprised about it uh, because it is, uh, very powerful uh, and, and to making the system of racial white supremacy stronger. That, that's, that's my thoughts on, on the, uh, the question that I asked her and her uh, response to it. That is very common uh, with Many of the white guests that we've had, I'd say with white people in general, uh, oftentimes that drifts to the uh, rhetoric of, you know, love and people just love who they love or, you know, I don't try to uh, police, you know, how people's romance and dating and all the rest of it, as opposed to just looking at the evidence, you know, it's been lots of this. Has this helped us get anywhere near 
permanently solving this problem. Thomas Jefferson and all that previously mentioned haven't seen any evidence, but that's, that's very, very common, very rare to get a white person be like, yeah, the bedroom thing is not helping. In fact, it's just making it worse. Very rare to get that from a white person. Anyone really. Any other folks thoughts, yeah. observations? Uh, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Oh, okay. <clears throat> call from uh, North Florida again. Uh, I actually decided to call in, but I looked up, looked the guests up, and thought she was from Marietta, Florida. And uh, two things: one observation, I noticed uh, the, re- the the laughter uh, from the from the questions that were asked. And but but I could help reflect on uh, again uh, when I was a young child at, at elementary school when she's younger than me, uh, and the young white kid saying, "Okay, Zora want a nigger." Oh, but gee, well, well, I was kind of curious if you'd be uh, forthcoming about how the training get passed on. Uh, but that's it. I, oh, last thing, I did not ask. I meant to ask about. I, I go to Bay Ranch about about every other month. Uh, rural, rural county in Florida, high COVID rates, and of course, there's a rampant uh, defiance. Go to Walmart. None of those white folks wearing masks. Uh, that's it. I did forget to ask about the Rona. I feel like that's kind of mandatory uh, just, you know, just because we talk to people that are in so many different places. We had our caller yesterday. She was on from South Africa. And then today she's born in the Florida area. And, you know, we should have our global Sunday talk this weekend. So my negligence, my negligence, I definitely should have asked about uh, the Rona in terms of is she taking it seriously? Mask distancing, all of the vaccine like that alone. Maybe she already got a vaccine. I don't know. Um, but yeah, that's always good information to know, especially cause I think Florida has been, uh, an area that they've called a hot spot for some time. And they've had lots of white dem- from the very beginning. Cause this time last year, Daytona beach, they were running, they had whites from all over who were, they had the pictures and it went, I mean, exclusively whites down in Florida doing our thing. Yes. Younger white people. They had older white people too, but I'm just saying, it's been a whole 12 months of that white defiance regardless. And in fact, they even had another report. I'm, I'll get to the other folks. I'm just want to make sure I share this before we exit. Um, they had a separate report. It was talking about, there are a larger number of people outside going to like ski resorts and things. I would assume white people for skiing. Cause that's kind of pricey. Um, but they said there also have been a huge increase in the number of deaths by avalanche which I thought was crazy, but then I kept seeing it. It was in lots of different news outlets and they were explaining it. They were saying it's somewhat related to COVID-19, although not totally, but somewhat causally related because uh, activities are limited. So if people are going to try to do things, it's outdoor things. So they want to go skiing and you can get some exercise. That's one, two, since people are doing that, it's more crowded at many of the ski areas. They said, so this is pushing some people, well, I guess, uh, veteran skiers to go further out to more dangerous areas to snow or to ski to get away from the crowds. And when they're doing this, it's putting them, I guess, in greater danger for avalanche. That was part of the theory about what's happening. All of that to say they had a report of a in one of these avalanches, I think like 11 people died uh, at one of these. And they said a person went to rescue and they couldn't they weren't as effective and they said that they think that's COVID related too, because it's been such a prolonged period of stress 
for the whole world to be under lockdown and all this. And do you want a vaccine and just everything that has gone into this, that that prolonged stress, it can have an impact. So you don't have as much endurance uh, as maybe you would have normally. Uh, Cause he said they would only go out and ski and he would do rescues and stuff. And he said, he just didn't have it. And he said it even disrupted his training a little bit because it's been so many, it's been so much chaos. So I just thought that was important. Been uh, what a year it has been. Hopefully we can do as well as we can to hang in there and do some self care and have some patience, all of that to maybe have some patience that it has been a tough year in many ways for lots of people and might be impacting us in lots of different ways. So hopefully that can help us be patient. The caller who just dialed in in Florida, just to ask, do you, do you think there'll be any constructive value uh, in individuals classified as white discontinuing the use of the term white as a racial classification? Uh, uh, n- I don't see that really being, no, I don't see that. Because they still, as long as they practice racism, I mean, they're still going to do what they're going to do. So I don't see that. They'll still figure out another, another metric to do what they're going to do, in my opinion. But I'm still learning too. <laughs> here, here. Just trying to follow logic i guess yesterday in south africa i was going to she would be all on board with that her recommendation was we should use black and non-black as the descriptors for people on the planet what happened in a system of white supremacy we don't identify anyone as white black and non-black following logic following logic uh let's see even though i do think there would be a a robust number of non-white people in you know the u.s and other places who would agree and say yes that's that's what i need to get my james brown sound clip back i will get on my duty hopefully by the time we get to oj simpson on thursday i'll have my black and proud button back black and i'm proud black and i'm proud other folks who dialed in have observations kelly j baker I would like to make another comment. Yes, sir. Uh, yes, uh, I uh, I listened to uh, the program uh, that was yesterday, and I I thought it was uh, constructive. Uh, and my my because my questions would be on the subject matter that uh, the uh, white guest yesterday was was. Uh, uh, talking on similar to Jane Elliott, uh, didn't white people make all of this, uh, uh, these proponents, these words and distinctions? Did, didn't white people make all these things up? The racial classifications, uh, I, unless yes, I have sir. been misinformed. <laughs> and yes, identification thereof, yes. Up. And they are in charge. Like you can't just go, you know, around willy nilly and just start switching your racial classification. Like you will get in trouble with white people. Invariably. Right. So, you know, just trying to follow logic. Right. And, and, and that's why that's, that's why the term, the term, the, the, the term would be white, non-white. <laughs> You know, but when I hear a white person that now I hear from non-white people as well as white people. But when a white person makes that type of distinction, 
there are practicing racism, white supremacy. I think a non-white person saying saying that would tell me that that non-white person is confused on what we pro- we previously had just talked about, not understanding the white people made all those distinctions up. And you're, and you're just communicating back to them on what they actually made up themselves. If that makes sense. Need to get my black and proud button back. I will have that by <laughs> Thursday. But uh, yes. 1968, James Brown. <laughs> Not a good year, MLK. Not a good year. Not many of them. Yes, Most sir. of them have not been good years, so that's not saying a whole lot in the system. But, uh, yeah, very popular. And certainly white people doing all of the confusion with I was going to get I said I have to go back and get the sound clip because I'm sure most people have not been listening for 12 years to hear like Jane Elliott said the exact same thing <laughs> like we had to do two mm-hmm. we didn't have to but we did two mm-hmm. programs and I cited that specifically and same thing as I did yesterday that is an act of racism to have a white person telling me how to speak much less to you having a and she used the exact same reasoning that you're centering white people and why would you use terms that are going to labor yourself with white people at the center we're in a system of white supremacy of course we're going to use terms that reflect who is at the root the center of the shenanigans worldwide they don't want that let's, Absolutely. let's get some other terms come on now take that spotlight off of me hey let's 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 talk about house nigger man black history month and house niggers come on we don't want to talk about white people let's talk about these house niggers i know we got some around here somewhere and that's that's very popular also everywhere in the world let's stop talking about these white people i don't want to get in that much trouble let's find the coon of the week I'm will say that I have a lot of self-interest in that because it seems that I am regularly voted coon of the week all over the world. You can go look on the Twitter feed yesterday and you can see so many of the non-white people purportedly saying, oh, man, that Gus is a bully and a no count and right, right, which I which is exactly what they said when Jane Elliott was on the program 10 years ago. So very little has changed, uh, but it's been lots of that uh, for a long time. So I do have a lot of self-interest in saying, hey. Let's stay off of the house niggers and coon of the week because it seems Gusty Renegade does get those titles from time to time. So, hey, let's stay off of the house niggers. Let's keep the focus on the problem. Racist man, racist woman, racist child classified as white. Other folks have any pro- or content commentary they want to get in. If not, we can conclude for the evening. We'll get ready for OJ Day on Thursday. Uh yeah, really quickly. I thought, I thought the guest today didn't like. She didn't really give us anything in terms of strategies or, or like just answering people's questions, like just straightforward. Like people, I think everybody, most people asked her like a question that involved like a strategy or what should we do or. But, um, she didn't really provide anything. Um. The the guest yesterday, like, I think I started seeing her on, like, Facebook, like, maybe a couple, maybe a couple, maybe a few months ago. I think I'd seen her before, but I, I started seeing her a lot on, like, my Facebook and some of the people that I sort of, oh, well, I guess on Facebook. 
and she's um, I'm from that part of the world and I think she's like um, the people that post her I, I don't know how to describe it it's like she she like allows like black people to be to seem intellectual I don't know if that makes any like they they um it allows like dialogue for them to seem smart about topics about you know like what Mandela did at this time or at this trial or you know like Ramaphosa did this and that kind of stuff where the focus is just like on black people um and sort of like if you if you sort of like play what she says and you know some of the things that she's talking about then you're sort of intelligent or something like that um yeah and i think like i haven't listened i'm i'm listening to the archives i think i'm I'm maybe like 50 minutes in um um but if i if i hear like i think i did hear a portion where she was talking about that white non-white but i don't I, i don't i guess there's a later portion where it gets in deeper but that would be like funny to me like considering that in South Africa, like, the signs would have, like, multiple terms for white. It would be, like, white, it would be vid, it would be blanca. So it would be, like, multiple things to describe white people. Um, And interestingly, like, with today's show, what you're talking about children, like, if you, I think if you Google some of these stuff, the stuff about, like, images of some of these signs, you would see, like, a lot of, like, black, women as like maids at these like parks or whatever and like outdoor spaces where these signs are like taking care of like white children so uh, that's interesting to me Uh, thank you Mm, the black african oh man is it am i talking out of turn if i say born in south africa because i feel like you cheered that before is that is that acceptable (laughs) some connection to that yeah yeah that's yeah that's acceptable Okay. Um, Yeah, yeah, I thought that was important because it seems like, particularly with what you said, like it seems like she kind of, how would I say, offers a platform uh, for black people to sound intelligent, I guess, provided that they're, you know, talking about as Madiba or Ramaphosa or, you know, I don't know, maybe maybe, uh, Jacob Zuma is a house nigger or, you know, whatever else. The ANC is lame. They sold us out. They didn't, you know, whatever else you want to say. Um, that is not addressing her as perhaps a racist white supremacist. You're intelligent. Uh, there, it looks like she had a cavalcade of her like followers, uh, who wrote on Twitter. And one of them, they posted one of the pictures because you talked about in South Africa, they would have the pictures up that would say whites only, uh, and they would have it written, I guess, in Afrikaans. I'm ignorant. I don't, I don't know in Afrikaans or, you know, different languages, but the point is that no Negros, uh, on this beach or, you know, wherever it is, but they showed where it was some signs where it did have, uh, whites only or white beach or whatever it is. But then underneath that it had non-white. So it seemed like they had an area that would be like, all right, white people here. And then maybe, a uh, colored area were non-white people, non, yeah, non-white, non-black people type area here. Uh, and they were saying, see, uh, it's not the same. You can't just talk about it like black people and non-white people are all the same, right? Because we've had a different experience and you need to come here because you don't understand the dynamic of how things work here. Does that make 
sense that you can't just, you know, say, hey, it's white supremacy, racism, white people are the problem because colored people have had a, a different experience here in South Africa. Does that make sense? The black African? Um, no. Um, yeah, I think I think colored people, I, I might be, I think po- colored people have had the same experience except that they're just labeled differently. Um, but I think they've had the same experience. In fact, I used to think like, like some, some of the, like maybe some, I'll, I'll look at your Twitter. Uh, some of those folks, um, the so-called colored people. And I remember, cause I've lived in both areas. I've lived here and there, like growing up as a kid. And I, and I remember like my sister got, got ill and we had to go to the hospital. And so this was my first time going to a hospital in what they call the location, which is basically the ghetto. And so they used to divide the ghetto by uh, the ghettos, well, in that particular town, um, a black sort of African, if you could say that, and then like a colored, but in the middle was the hospital and everybody used the same hospital. And then I started to like just walk around and it was basically the same thing. Because I used to think differently, but it was just the same squalor. It was the same poverty, the same stuff, I guess. And and I and a lot of people that I guess colored people that I that I that I sort of like listen to or whatever on Facebook or on the internet or that I talk to talk about this constantly. That colored people sometimes want to portray themselves as differently than the so-called black Africans. But the situation is just the same. Uh, sometimes it's even worse, like um, like the Cape Flats and things like that. I I can't say the Cape Flats is better than living in Soweto or Kailich or something like that. It's the same poverty, the same squalor. <laughs> yeah, I just don't. Yeah. On Twitter, I'm at Until Justice. Uh, if you, I guess the easiest way I guess to do it would just be if you do like a Twitter search for at until justice and then do the latest that way you can scroll through like today. Uh, it won't take too long, but just scroll through the stuff from today. And then you'll see yesterday. It seems like she has a whole mob of could be victims in South Africa. Wouldn't surprise me. It's lots of confused victims all over the world. Uh, but they came like, Oh my God. And again, the exact same thing happened when we had Jane Elliott on the program 2010, like exists in the archives. Like I have to put them together so you can hear like, this is what Gus has endured for a dozen years, patiently for the most part. Like I haven't resorted to cursing and name calling, but one of the folks posted. So they said, uh, and this, well, I'll read the name. Look him. We've seen so many black Americans being so ignorant about South African racism. That is why I recommend that they come to South Africa else do proper research and stop using what the media tells them about South Africa. Here's another example. Maybe this will give them something. So they have a sign from Pretoria. There's no date uh, and it's it's not written in English. Uh, I guess this could be Afrikaans. I'm not sure. Uh, I get Blancs or it says Ni Blancs, N-I-E Blancs. I don't even know what this says. It'd be hard for me to process because it's not written in English. Uh, But it has non-white. That's the only English portion is on the bottom. I would need to know what the top portion says to make sense of this. But this is the sign that they posted to talk about me not understanding, or I guess black people in America in general, not understanding racism, white supremacy. Uh, I guess I would only conclude I am still learning, but I have not seen anything uh, about 
colored people, Asian people, really anybody having like military might to march into South Africa and do whatever they want with the exception of white people. Everybody else, that's where even that's where you get the wackiness to have the audacity to say that it should be black and non-black. South Africa, that's where you have the nonsense of honorary whites when you have so-called Asians that can come in and well, we will allow you to be so-called white maybe for a certain period of time. You'll be an honor and cause rife confusion with that. Had that term cause confusion all over the world with so-called honorary whites. Stick to the basics. Stick to the basics. Focus on the problem. Racist man, racist woman, racist child. But yeah, if folks, if anybody can translate this sign and let me know what it's saying, Pretoria, uh, knee blancs, even that portion of it. I guess I can try and figure that out. N I E blancs, B L N I E is N I E is no or like no, and blanca is like it's like the word blank. It's white. Um, I'll 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 look on on your Twitter and I'll email you about the Pretoria sign. Um, but um. Yeah, but me Blanca just means like no or no whites or non-whites. Uh, but I'll look at the I'll look for the other one. Thank you. Oh yeah, just quickly, like I remember at the at the retreat, there was this question about colors, and so that's how I I picked this name this this tag of I think I said this before of uh, the Black African because um, some of the some of the folks there started asking me about this colored thing. And so they started asking. And at, at the beginning, I thought I could answer. I, I thought I could answer what a colored person is. But then the more I got questioned, the more I realized I, it's really just a term of confusion. It's just a victim of racism, a, a black person that's a victim of racism. Uh, yeah. That's why I just go with non-whites. I'm still learning. It took me so long. I was so focused on the first sentence. So it's translated suburban station for non-whites. So that's what the sign says in Pretoria. I don't know what the issue is in terms of how this, if she's, unless this is what I've heard before. Jane Elliott was kind of saying this, like you're just using the same language as the oppressors. Like they call you non-whites and refer to you in this way. Hey, make it plain. Now we don't have any confusion. Now I don't have to spend years trying to figure out now what is a colored person? Let me see. What is a, what is an honorary white and go through all and make it plain non-whites over here now we got it no confusion now we can make it real clear about what problem particularly if they did that all over the world now we can stop wasting time we don't have to go through all of this foolishness with all these racial classifications and documentaries titled uh i'm interracial not black Damn it. You can Google that one because I was trying to get her as a guest on the program. Well, we wouldn't have to waste time with all of that. We wouldn't have 8,000 categories on the census. It would be super plain and easy. The problem, individuals classified as white. I did My question that I was going to ask, though, in related to this sign, though, who put this sign up? We'll let that one hang. Generally, I'm I'm real clear because I've seen signs like that when we had to read about sundown towns, anything where it's telling people on a basis of racial classification. I know who has the power to put those signs up anywhere in the known universe. 
but I'm still learning. Any other folks comments they need to get in? Can I be heard? Thomas in New York. Yes, sir. I was pondering that non-black. Um, that's interesting. That's the first I heard of that one. Um, well, I guess I did hear that before, but um, hmm, that that would be refinement because that would what make um, put white people in the same category with Chinese people and Indian people, and, you know, and then alienate us. You know, I, I could see the. <laughs> Revenue fine races coming up with that one. That would work so well for them. Um, and South Africa, man, uh, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, United States, Canada, all part of the UK, together called the Six Eyes, E Y E S, and they dominate the whole world. <laughs> Let me talk about the most powerful white supremacists. Um, very effective, very effective. Um, they even got a wine in Australia, Gus. It's called 19 Crimes, and uh, it celebrates the 19 crimes you got bandits to Australia for if you were a white person in England. And you could actually sell. They got Snoop Dogg selling the wine. Um, the guest tonight, I would say she was pleasantly, a pleasant, refined racist, uh, white women, um, talk very, you know, giggly and bubbly and, you know, typical television white girl kind of tone and um, agree with things, but kind of in her long um, dialogues give pushback and kind of redefine things. She did that to the firefighter a few times. She said co- co- they coerced, they, they co- coerced this. Something with, um, he was talking, um, she didn't want to say white people and black people having sex, you know, the, the coercement or something she said, but just very refined. I think that um, the way she, um, her correspondence with Emmy back and forth, that was very telling her answers. Um, she was very revealing there. And I'll meet my line. Um, she did admit that white women are a problem. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, when she was talking to Emmy and she diverted to the story about being suspicious of white people or not trusting them. And she said that that sounds harsh. Uh, the system, Claude Neal is harsh. Khalif Browder is harsh. We're reading Jeffrey too, but hey, if O.J. Simpson is innocent, what he has endured the last 25 years is harsh. Having lowly niggers be suspicious of you in a system of white supremacy is not harsh, especially if that suspicion is founded. That was one I remember at the exchange with Emmy about... Uh, Tell us something. Help us out. Solve this problem. Suspicious of white people is not harsh. Logical. That would have been a better word choice. Suspicion of white people is logical. Anything else? Folks satisfied? Grant, we will be here on Thursday. Jeffrey Tubin, the run of his life 
again, I'm, I have not read this book, right? So I do not know what he is going to share. Like, is he going to give the full rundown? This is what was in the Furman audio. I know he does to some degree, but I don't know if he's going to give it all. Is it going to be abbreviated? Uh, It seems like the chapter on the Furman audio is long and it should be because it was kind of an odyssey uh, how they got it again. I think I said last week they didn't even need the Furman audio. The jury would have, uh, I think they could have, not presented a single witness for the defense. They could have wrapped their case up when the prosecution concluded. They could have no witnesses. Mr. Simpson's not going to testify. We rest. Let's enjoy our summer. We would have ended this thing four months earlier. They got the Furman audio in. That is for posterity, for people like us who want to study this 25 years after the case. Great. It's in the record. But the jury didn't even hear the Furman audio in its totality. So it couldn't have been that much of an impact on it. even the part where Mark Furman comes back and takes the fifth that'll be tomorrow too like that's it's lots like whew, big big chunks uh, in the book tomorrow uh, but they didn't hear that either uh, and they still managed to exonerate him I man a high school teacher I, I guess folks didn't have any thoughts to say on that did any anyone have any thoughts on that a black high school teacher showing the OJ Simpson trial in a history class with white students did anybody have any a thought on that before we I do <laughs> wouldn't she I be fired I'd be terrified if that was I'm sorry go ahead uh, well she wasn't and she didn't make it seem like the teacher positioned it like he was guilty either I'm like hmm you know um so I just thought that was very interesting and the class debated and it went down racial lines now I would take this this was after this wasn't live during the OJ trial right she said they, this was a class she was in and they brought this in later right I'm pretty sure she said they were watching this like live. Live, live. Oh, okay. So, yeah, so that that pretty much concludes. Like, all black people pretty much thought he was innocent. She said all the black people thought he was innocent, all the white people thought he was guilty. So I think that uh, it just shows you, once again, the damaged propaganda all these years have done to black people. She did say that she said it broke racial lines. The black people thought he was innocent. She said she thought he could have been guilty, but she said she didn't have big, very strong, you know, feelings about it either way. Just wondering why they were watching this. That is, uh, yet to, and she said it did seem like the black teacher, Miss McClendon, if I'm remembering her name, it did seem like she thought he was innocent of these crimes. So, I mean, yeah, can you imagine (laughs) I'm going to be a black teacher teaching white students and then I'm going to debate them that OJ Simpson is innocent and I can go home and sleep and chill and have no thought process that, you know, their parents aren't going to light up. I guess they didn't have email to light up back then, but they're going to be up here storming the PTA and get that, you know, with the racist, ignorant jurors and all man I do I could not imagine getting through the school year if we're going to show OJ Simpson every day and talk about this in class like wow we will uh, chat it up or rental James I'm so excited uh, for Thursday normal time 8 p.m. Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific Uh, I kind of feel like OJ got uh, he's getting all his little uh, comeuppance uh, on the slide, like I, he got in his jab at Jeffrey Tubin uh, last year uh, after the whole Zoom thing came out. And then the females at the Capitol, to me, maybe he didn't mean it this way, but to me, it almost seemed like, man, 
these white women have spent 25 years making me the poster child of domestic violence and beating up women and all the rest of it and then they turn around and they're the ones leading the charge talking about we need to kill Nancy Pelosi and I'm going to put a bullet in her freaking head and all things that just that surprised me I, I thought white sisters would be more together sense of union Arenthal James getting all of his comebacks in 2021 and he got his Rona vaccine too they were upset about that Arenthal James long live Arenthal James uh, book club is Thursday 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Looking forward. Much obliged to folks who tuned in today. Uh, the archives, we had white women back to back. Kim Heller yesterday, Kelly J. Baker. Today, those K's. All we need is one more K. Karen. Karen, Kim, and Kelly would have had it all together. Anywho, much obliged for folks who tuned in. Hope it was worthy of your time and energy. Uh, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy we will need a fully functioning brain computer to neutralize the likes of Kim Heller Kellen J. Baker racist man, racist woman racist child Uh, in addition to being sober let's be buckled every time we are in a vehicle Uh, driver, passenger, whatever if you are going, well I guess for a lot of folks you are snowed in like we were here in Seattle over the weekend, so if you're dealing with all the inclement weather and what have you stay warm, stay buckled, I hope you have supplies and everything that you need so you don't have to do any unnecessary, uh, potentially dangerous uh, travel, just stay stay warm and things will warm soon, hopefully Uh, but if you are able to go out, if you have to go out be alert uh, white mob violence been lots of that over the last uh, year uh, be alert uh, if you see whites being loud rowdy anything of the like uh, exit if this is not a time for verbal confrontations and you know I'm going to show you I'm black and I'm proud you're not going to you know intimidate me and all that nah, not the time for that at all especially in the US uh, it's lots of armed whites Lots of armed people, period. If you did not leave your residence intending to die and or kill, exit the area. You have no idea if the person that is being loud and rowdy, if they are armed, if they left the house with a whole militia of other white people that maybe you just can't see right now. And they also are armed. Lots to think about in very unsafe times. Plus, we got the Rona and, you know, everything else. Uh, If you are going out, you're sober, driver or passenger, you're buckled. If you're driving, you are not on the cell phone. Just doing the small things that we can to stay safe. Uh, If you are driving, you are not on the cell phone. Uh, Just again, we need to be vigilant about what's happening around us. And we're trying to do little things to stay away from the Mark G.E.D. Furmans of the known universe. That said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing up. 
Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, no brother. Problem. You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>